Welcome to the Big Readcast. I'm Joel. I'm Bill. If this is your first time joining us, uh, what we usually do is we read a book over 500 pages, and then Bill and I sort of bloviate in each other's general directions (laughs) for like two hours. (laughs) Um, But this podcast is sort of, I don't know if it's our favorite, but I love doing this podcast. This is our year-end reading podcast where we actually just talk about the various books we read, stuff we liked, stuff we didn't like, um, sort of a, a book club about Every book we did. Only, only this year we're we're definitely not going to get to every book. Um, this year was a a special year for one uh, William Coberly Esquire, um, <laughs> who uh, you set out to read 104 books this year, Bill. For some, I don't. You have to explain why at some point. Uh, how did that go? Did you succeed? <laughs> I did. At about four o'clock p.m. on New Year's Eve, I finished *The Farthest Shore* by Ursula K. Le Guin, and therefore finished. 104 books in the year of our Lord, 2021. The reason why is because I said that would be kind of fun to someday read an average of two books a week. And then I started doing it and kept making enough progress to keep doing it. And then in about November, I was really behind, but I wasn't so far behind. Like if I stopped there, it would have been okay, but I was going to keep reading books, which meant that I would have ended up at like 94. And I said, that's just (laughs) insulting. And so I read way too much in December and November. And haven't read anything this year, which I guess we're only a few days in. But uh, yeah, I did it. 104 books. Uh, an average of 310 pages. I forget the total page count, but it was more than 30,000. Um, I don't know if I can recommend doing that exactly, uh, but I'm glad I did it. I'm never going to do it again, or at least not until I'm you know, a full-time critic who can just sort of sit around and eat bonbons and <laughs> read texts and get paid a million dollars a year. Do they eat um, bonbons? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I feel like you have to when you have a cushy job like that. Uh, I've said before, my ideal job is uh, to be paid a significant amount of money to sit in my house and have good opinions. Not to say <laughs> the good opinions to anyone. Not to not to write the opinions. Yeah, just yeah. to have them. To be sort of a repository of wisdom that I share only with those who, you know, climb the tall mountain and I, I was just gonna say seven secret gates. So, so you'd be like you'd be like a, kind of a hot take monk, you know? You wouldn't actually yeah, give, exactly. you wouldn't actually give the hot takes, but you would have all of them, you know, locked and loaded for anyone who, who made the pilgrimage. Yeah, exactly. Like you, you don't have a Twitter account, but you you climb the right. mountain and you come talk to me, and I say the purpose of poetry is to generate titles for science fiction novels, and you go away edified. How, how dare you? I'm right, by the way. I mean, I don't really believe that, but I also do. That- oh man, <laughs> brutal stuff from Bill Coberly. I can't recover from that one. Um, I've uh, told you that before. It's no, you have, joke. you have. I just every okay. time, every time you say it, I try and think of a, you know, like a, a rejoinder of some kind, and then I just like Dan Simmons, like Hyperion, and so forth, just flashes through my head. Which obviously they're not just <laughs> named for the for Keats, but like they're named for Keats poems, you know? Yeah. <laughs> ah, Ted Gummit. But um, but no. <laughs> but so, and I was gonna ask you. So I I have this um. I feel like when so we have a books podcast, Bill. In case you know. 
you forgot. Oh, but, that <laughs> but no, so I think that there, I, I think sometimes I've been resistant to the idea of like having a reading project that's not for research of like, an, you know, like the, to actually produce a paper of some kind. I've always been resistant to like, I'm going to have this goal or I'm going to have this, you know, yeah, this, this project in mind that I'm going to try to accomplish over the course of a year or whatever. And I think it's because there's some sort of like, there used to be at this point, you know, I've been stripped to my cynical skeleton, you know, I don't care anymore. <laughs> but in the past, I think I was resistant to some of that stuff because you know, it was almost like a middle brow, uh, you know, uh, subtext to like, I'm going to do this many books so I can prove I'm smart. That's what I used to think, you know? And, um, but then I, like, I got more serious about reading, which is a dumb thing to say. I hate even saying it, but I did. I tried to like, you know, I was like, oh, I like books. And I kind of four or five years ago looked at my other hobbies. Like I used to be a real big film buff or I used to run a lot. And I realized that like everything else that I, you know, do for a hobby, I sort of track it or I, it, it's fun for me to like know every title that's going to be released in theaters for this year. Like I used to do that. Right. Um, or for running, I used to, you know, time myself to see how fast I was. And again, I also stopped doing that because now it's just like a slow crawl, you know, from the bedroom <laughs> to my kid's room <laughs> or whatever. Um, but you no, know, so I realized that like, um, these kind of limits and these rules, they make the hobby into kind of a higher level game, right? Like that's what a game is, right? It has limits and rules. And so I kind of like this year I had my own little project that developed organically, but then when I actually, once I set it in stone, which we'll talk about later, once I set the actual, like you're going to finish it, it was really fun. And I feel like that's one of the ways in which people who are kind of, you know, poo-pooing the idea of like, you know, you keep a reading list. I don't know any, any any kind of middle brow thing that you know people might pounce on. I think they're missing the point, which is that like it's because it's it's fun in some way, right? Like it, I don't know. That's that's my argument at least. I'm it's curious if that kind of was the case for you. Like obviously, like 104 books is an achievement. I don't want to take away from the fact that like that's crazy, Bill. And I I prayed for you a lot this year. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, like surely it also kind of like. Like I don't know, it's like a, a serious rock climber, you know. They, the more technical they get, the, the more pleasure it gets. Maybe fun's not the right word, but like there's some kind of relationship between, you know, upping the ante and and enjoying it. Surely. Yeah. So one thing, I, I was using it partly as an attempt to try to develop some better habits on projects, doing something a little more fun than writing, uh, which I need to do a lot more of. And my hope is that this year will be a writing year the way last year was a reading year. And one reason I did this was to try to like get better at doing something every day or not every day, of course, but, you know, more regularly and a little bit at a time. Right. Uh, so that I could then use those habits to do something more productive. That was part of it. Part of it was just to try to get a high score. I mean, so exactly well, the sort of yeah. gamification stuff you're talking about. Um, you know, gamification gets a bad rap because a lot of the way it was used is is bad. And Jane McGonigal is sort of a fundamentally silly right. person. Um, but, uh, she's nevertheless right in that having sort of rewards and tracking or whatever can help you get through some of these ridiculous projects in a way that becomes fun. Like there is sort of a Xbox badoink noise that goes on in your head whenever you write down a new book in your book list. You know what I mean? Uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, it did mean there were some books I read this year that I was like, I wouldn't read this except because I have this project. You know, I'm halfway through it and I would stop reading if it wasn't that I was, you know what I mean? Which one... Like, it's kind of artificial, and so maybe it's not great. Maybe I should have read something else. On the other hand, I don't like having books on my shelf I haven't read, and I've still got a lot. I don't mean oh that. Oh, my gosh. I and so forcing me. myself to get through some of, the, like, the 
weird conservative stuff I inherited from my dad uh, was good because there's not a lot of other ways to get through this. I didn't actually do as much of that as I intended to. The other thing is I was intending to write about every book I read, which I did for about half the year and then stopped. Um, Good. Well, you're because you're because you're a, a public defender, you know, like you have. <laughs> yeah, you're busy. no, I, I don't feel <laughs> bad about it. I don't mean that. But no, was, I know. One of the, the one of the other ideas was to try to be better about writing about the stuff I read, which I right. hope to do more of next year when I'm not reading quite so much. Um, I don't know. It was a it was an odd project. Like I said, I'm not going to do it again. And there were moments when I was like, I'm just reading this 150 pages today because I need to catch up from yesterday when I didn't read anything, and I'm having a hard time paying attention and not just passing my eyes over it like I'm reading in college again. So there's a couple books I read that if you asked me what happened in them, I could give you a back of the book and not much else, but not most of them. Most of them I, I remember relatively well. I don't know. It was a weird project. Uh, I try not to brag about it too much because like that's definitely annoying the people who are like, <laughs> I'm such a bookworm because of how much I read and look at right. my Goodreads account, uh, which I'll never have. I'll never have a Goodreads account. I'll never do it. I'm against Goodreads. I don't really know enough about it to have an opinion. But I, I <laughs> no, no, keep anyway. going, Bill. <laughs> um, we're going to burn some stuff down today, man. You ready? Yeah. Um, but, right, you know, there's right. a way in which, like, the people who are posting about how much they read every year can be pretty annoying. And so I tried not to do too much about that. But then, of course, at the end of the year, I still wanted to be like, I did do this thing. <laughs> no, totally. Well, so I, that's what I was going to say is I, I actually feel like this is, this is part of Joel's refurbished I don't care anymore stance on general things in life. Because there's a lot of, like, there's a lot of uh, – opinions that of course just filter down through the culture that you learn to kind of abhor and i think gamification right was used in a way that was dumb and so you're not supposed to like that anymore and i actually and i generally generally i am kind of against what i also call like quantification of everything you know like fitbit drives me crazy <laughs> i don't i don't care about your steps i'm sorry to anyone who's listening to this and i maybe we've talked about your steps and i act like i cared it was a lie <laughs> i don't care <laughs> Um, but, uh, but so, you know, gamification gets a bad rap for a lot of good reasons, as does sort of like middle brow things, which, I mean, Phil Chrisman has a whole great essay on it that I don't want to, you know, I I don't want to get into the deeper end, but like the general idea of middle brow is that you're doing something just to like appear highbrow or like there's some kind of self-improvement going on that might be a little suspect, you know, a vanity project of some kind. And and yet what's hard is I, I, but at the same time, like, um, you know, those two ways of thinking about enjoying a hobby or disciplining yourself to, like, you know, get through 104 books or, or whatever, like, um, they bump up against real things. That, there's an overlap. So, like, what I'm trying to say is, you know, there's an aesthetic equality to anything worth doing, right? There has to be a disciplined or a, a, a carrot you're giving yourself element to any kind of thing that's worth doing. Like I said, running or... Um, Actually, writing is a great example. You know, I had a buddy recently say, you know, how do you get back to writing? Well, the answer is very simple. You just keep writing, you know. The bad the bad writing, as a teacher once told me, the bad writing is just to bridge the good writing. You just have to go over it. Um, all to say so, I don't know. But I, so I found myself this year, like, I think, kind of falling more in love with some of the things that you've always done. The idea of, like, finishing an author, you know, com- you know being, a, being a completist, or actually setting a goal of, like, you know, a number of books to read. I kind of just like stopped caring if that made me like your classic like 1950s dad who bought the great books collection from Harvard. You know, like who cares? Like I don't know. The great books are great. Like at least he's reading them. You know what I mean? And at least I had a 
pro, you know, a, a propeller attached to my habit so that I wasn't just drowning in, you know, <laughs> you know, Netflix and tacos, <laughs> which I also, <laughs> which still happened, but, <laughs> um, but yeah, so I don't know. So yeah, so you've done this huge project. Did you, it seemed like you had projects within the project as well, though, correct? Like you had kind of these, mini, I yeah. did. Yeah. I had two major authors I was trying to be a completist on, one of which I succeeded, and the other one I didn't quite finish. I've got one book and two little novellas uh, that I didn't read. So I wanted to read everything Victor Laval wrote. So I guess I didn't technically finish because there's a graphic novel that I have but haven't read. But I've read all of his prose stuff that he's published in book-length format. Uh, and then I wanted to read everything Connie Willis ever wrote, which is kind of a ridiculous project because when i started it i had read one book by connie Will. yeah <laughs> uh, a lot. but i finished it and she's wonderful uh the only one i haven't read her last novel crosstalk which everyone says isn't very good and being 80 pages in i think i agree so far yeah and then she wrote two little novellas that didn't get collected and anything else and so i haven't read those either um but i read 16 15 or 16 connie willis books this year uh so that felt good and we'll talk more about that later probably but truly truly incredible stuff um other than that it was a little more scattershot just kind of whatever I happen to have. Uh, but that's, you know, 20-something books right there. So, yeah, I had those two projects, which we'll talk about more in a minute. Yeah. No, I want to talk to you about your project, though. I don't want this to keep being about uh -oh. me. You did a project this year, too. So tell me about your project. Well, you know, it was an accident. So um, I felt like I was kind of <laughs> – I was kind of waffling around at the beginning of the year. Like, you know, I was doing my usual reading schedule of anything I can – find and want to read, you know, pure instinct, which is good. I like that. I think people should just read randomly. But um, it was kind of actually a, a ramp up. So in like January, February, I read a Kate Atkinson novel or two. Um, she's a writer I like a lot. I think of her, you know, I have a very basic category <laughs> for this kind of fiction, which is all the fiction I mostly read, which is just like intelligent entertainment, you know. I don't feel dumber after I've read it, but also it did, you know, rip me along, kind of like a thriller, a page turner. And so I was kind of like casting about, like, I, you know, I finished basically reading all of her mystery novels. Uh, you know, I was like, what should I do next? And so I was like, well, you know, years ago I read P.D. James, who I like a lot. I knew I liked her. And so I thought I would pick up one of her novels. And then I kind of just didn't stop. And like two or three novels into reading, <laughs> you know, two or three no novels in, I realized that and maybe even like one novel in, I can't remember, I have it in my notes, I realized that I wanted to just read everything she'd written. Um, and so there were two novels that I wrote, that I read um, previously. Her first novel, um, Cover Her Face, and her second novel, I think, A Mind to Murder. I read those like a few years ago. Um, and so I didn't reread those, but everything else I read, including a few rereads, and it was incredible. There was 20 books in total, including, um, her kind of autobiography, which is actually just like, she wrote it, this autobiography. Um, she wrote it purely to like preempt other people writing her biography. <laughs> <laughs> like she said, people kept asking her to like to be her there, you know, people kept wanting to be her official biographer. And she was like, I'm too private for that. So I'm going to keep a diary for a year and that'll be my autobiography. And so it's kind of, it's kind of, it's kind of lame to be honest, but also it was still like, I respected the move so much, you know, <laughs> she just didn't want anyone else telling her story. Um, so yeah, I read a bunch of her novels. P.D. James is like, the queen of murder, right? She's one of the great British murder writers. She worked from like the seventies about, you know, early seventies to she, her last book she published in like 2011, I think, or something like that. She was 91 though, is the takeaway when she published her last book, which was a uh, Jane Austen fanfic <laughs> called death comes to Pemberley. Um, and she's incredible. 
yeah, she totally kind of swept me off my feet in many ways. Um, and I, I'm really glad that I got to spend that much time in her brain. Uh, I joked with you earlier, like, you know, someone else asked me why I read so much this year. And I was like, I don't know, I guess, you know, <laughs> murder's a great, you know, cure for depression or something. <laughs> <laughs> I just couldn't stop reading her. But have you, you've not read her, have you? You haven't read P.D. James, have you? I haven't read any P.D. James at all. I only know who she is because of you. I, I guess I was aware of Death Comes to Pemberley because there was a movie or a serial, I guess, a few years ago yeah. with a couple actors I'd heard of. I didn't see it. But uh, so I was sort of vaguely aware the book existed, but I didn't know anything about P.D. James at all. And I, I still don't know much, to be honest. I know she wrote detective fiction. That's really. And yeah. my friend Joel has read all of it. That's about what I know. Well, and she so she's along with um, um, Ruth Rendell. She sort of it was kind of the master at using murder mysteries to just do like psychological studies, you know, so she would just. She every like every chapter's you know just kind of delving into someone's background and history and whatever else. But truly, what she does, Alan Jacobs actually, um, who's a, a critic, who's a professor at Baylor, who I like. Um, he he years ago wrote about one of her best novels, Devices and Desires, um, or maybe that's backwards. I don't remember. But um, and he kind of pointed out that her biggest novels, which are in the eighties, the like longest but also best, um, they really seem to share a lot of. DNA with Wilkie Collins and, you know, the other kind of Victorian novelists who are trying to marry these, like, social and psychological concerns to these, like, gothic, you know, pulpy tales. That truly is her wheelhouse. And I would even say, like, in terms of, like, current literary trends, you know, you have, um, well, like, Kanazidi Smith talks about it at one point in one of her essays, that there's a there's a way in which current fiction has to um, avoid seeming naive. Like we just, we cross some kind of threshold at some point in the 20th century where if you just write, um, a novel from third person and you kind of like fail to investigate objectivity or implicate the reader in whatever moral you're talking about, you know, if the moral, if the, if the things about like, you know, people making judgments too quickly, the book should somehow invite the reader to make the same mistake. Basically. Um, I, I think PD James, kind of gets away with writing Victorian novels because she does these absolutely gruesome plots, you know? Like, there's <laughs> <laughs> there's so much sex and murder in every one of her books, and um, and yet the, the books are refined, and, like, you know, they're, they're about Anglicanism and spirituality and various other kind of highfalutin things, and they're also told from, a, like, a totally old-school, like, you know, third-person narrator who jumps around people's heads, sometimes, like, paragraph to paragraph, and I think she gets away with it partly because, you, you know, Ruth Rendell similar. You can't accuse her of being naive. You know, the, the things that she's talking about, the content sort of allows the, the form to be old school. Um, but truthfully, at some point, like, some of that stuff melts away and you really are just, like, mind-melding with someone else when you connect with an author, you know? And I just loved how her mind worked. She was so, um, <laughs> she was so confident and so technical about like the things that she wrote about you know she always chose a really difficult field to write about whether it was you know the justice system or um even just you know uh she was in, in my five bit in one novel and so yeah i don't know she she definitely took over my life this year a little bit reading wise but she's she's crazy i mean she she married these two impossible things like a lot of her novels i've mentioned kind of the gothic victorian element but truthfully like her best novels like, they're almost like Jane Austen parlor room dramas, right? Because it's just the detectives going from room to room 
interviewing people. So it's just conversations in which people are trying to like get the best of each other socially, which is Jane Austen, you know, uh, who's her favorite author. And so, yeah, I, it was a really crazy year. I don't, I, I've never read this, this many words by one person in one year, you know, she doesn't write short books. <laughs> like, like, like devices and desires is like 700 pages, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know? And so, uh, so 20 novels and you know, there's a few short pieces in there and, and uh, whatnot, but it was really good. It was genuinely, genuinely re- re- revelatory how much fun and how much intelligence she kind of had to offer. So, all right. So, I want to ask you two questions. One, tell me which three P.D. James novels I should read. And two, then rank. I think she wrote a series with the same guy, right? I don't yeah. even know his name. Um, I want you to rank those and give me a two-second, su- uh, not summary, but, like, plot of each of them. Oh, God. So you may answer them in any order you wish. <laughs> okay. Just, like, they kill a guy, and this time he's at yes. the zoo is fine. Okay. Right? I just, you know. Okay. Right. See, you. okay. My, my suggestion to anyone who wants to read P.D. James is that you should start with Shroud for a Nightingale. If you like that book, then you can go back to Black Tower and then continue on with her 80s books, A Taste for Death and Devices and Desires. Those are her best books, but they're also like a great place to start because she's figured out what she's doing. So Shroud for Nightingale is the short answer where to start, and then you can basically go chronological if you like her. And I'm giving you a, a ranking, is that what I'm doing? <laughs> yeah, you're, I, I, can't, I don't remember the guy's name, the detective's yeah. name. So you there's, there's Furt, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you mention James Patterson? <laughs> I just mean, you know, like a lot of the, these writers, they have, you know, James Patterson and P.D. James, I'm getting the impression they're very similar writers in a lot of ways. Uh, no, I'm, <laughs> I'm sorry. But I just, you know, like you have a writer no, no, who is like, these yes. are the 10, you know, this detective books, right? And my understanding is there's like 14 of them that P.D. James wrote about the same yes. guy. Yes. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So, yeah, okay. her, um, so rank those. Her detective is Adam Dogleash. He happens to be a poet. And again, this is the kind of thing she can get away with. No one else can have a detective poet who's interesting, you know? Like, it's so pretentious, but it's it's perfect. It's perfect. Okay, rank them. The first is A Taste for Death, which is about an MP who is murdered after he has stigmata. <laughs> um, oh, dang. Is this the best one or the worst It's of the them? best. That's right, one of the best. Sorry, okay. that's the All best right. one. Uh, Devices and Desires is about sort of a serial killer, uh, killing people on the coast under the you know shadow of a nuclear power plant, and also there's a martyr in there. Death and Holy Orders is about an, a high Anglican college in which um, <clears throat> someone is done to death by being buried in sand. Um, Shroud for a Nightingale is about a nurse who's poisoned during a uh, you know a routine educational nurse thing, and it also involves uh, Holocaust. Uh, Criminals. Um, <laughs> Black. I'm getting the impression this is really light reading. Uh, she is. <laughs> really pleasant. She is funny. Yeah, no, you said she was gruesome. <laughs> she is yeah. pretty funny, but she is. She's so gruesome, though. I mean, she's so. <laughs> and her picture on the back of every cover is like this really like, like she has a formidable air, but her picture is like what a nice grandma, you know? <laughs> yeah. Ah, anyway, um, Black Tower is about what would happen if you uh, if if you went insane you know, on the coast with your sister. <laughs> the lighthouse <laughs> the lighthouse <laughs> is about uh, another island, um, and it asks the question of, can anyone solve a crime besides Dog Leash if he has the flu? Um, it's very good. <laughs> That's excellent. <laughs> um, <laughs> Original Sin is also about a hidden World War II connection that takes place in a uh, gothic publishing house. 
um, where people are murdered, of course. Everyone's murdered in these books. Um, <laughs> Death of an Expert Witness is about, uh, you know, yeah, a, a basically a, a, a coroner being murdered and it being an inside job. Um, the Murder Room is about uh, <laughs> what if, what if the elite? This is a like a true part of this thing. A little bit of a spoiler, I guess. What if the elite had a secret sex club that met in a niche Victorian murder museum, and someone died there? Oh. The Private Patient is about how the NHS is maybe not as good as you think it is. Just joking. It's kind of what it's about, though. Um, it's also her last book, and it ends. It's a weak book. But it ends on a really incredible note. It's like, it should be the last thing she wrote, except for a Jane Austen fanfic. Um, a Mind of Murder is about another nurse who may or may not have killed someone. <laughs> a Certain Justice Bill you would personally hate as much as I did. Because <laughs> it, <asked, laughs> it asked the question, if are we too easy on criminals? And is it the lawyer's fault? Oh, yeah. I'm going to like that book a lot. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> She's really smart about it, but it is kind of like, uh, we don't agree on this. Um, and also, and also, and also, that was the book where she has like she's so interested in architecture and um, paintings. Every book is like a little bit of a travelogue, you know. But this book really was like, I don't need to hear about any more, you know, um, cornest angles or whatever. I mean, I don't know, the, you know, balustrades and columns. Like, I don't know what these are, you know. And like most of the book. Oh, no, most of the book was genuinely, like, her describing someone's furniture. And then that person never came back. Like, they didn't matter to the book at all, you know? It's like when you read Lovecraft stories, and he takes, like, five pages to talk about the beautiful gambrel roofs of whatever. Yes. I don't even know what a gambrel roof yeah. is. Lovecraft <laughs> likes them, though. He thinks they're great. Yeah, they must be. I don't know. Yeah. And then, um, okay, last two. We're almost there. Uh, Cover Her Face is her first book. It might be better than I remember it being, but she and I... She said this as well at one point. She thought it was a, a weaker effort. It's her first novel. I think she's right. And then the, the one I liked least was Unnatural Causes, which is the first in what I would call the um, the subgenre of Dog Leash goes on vacation and someone is murdered around him and he must solve the case. Yeah. And it's the worst of those and the worst of the books, period. So that's the definitive Dog Leash ranking. We've done it. Taste for Death is great. <laughs> That's the uh, that's the official Big Read P.D. James ranking. You know, I know you guys have been waiting for that with bated breath, but no, for real, though, like, I, I, hearing you talk about these books uh, over the last year and then just in the last few minutes, I am definitely going to pick uh, a few of these up. I don't know if I'm going to read all of them, but, like, uh, I haven't read nearly as much proper detective fiction as you have. Uh, I've, I've seen a lot of good detective TV shows, all right. of which are British, all the really good ones yeah. are British. Uh, like, Foil's War is great. It's Foil's so War is good. incredible. What's his name? Uh, Michael Kitchen is one of the only lead actors I've ever heard of who will return a script back and say, I would like to have fewer lines, please, because all Chris Foyle <laughs> needs to do here is, like, raise an eyebrow. He doesn't need to say anything. And he's right every time. Oh, it's so great. <laughs> but anyway, I, uh, I'm i definitely going to pick some of these up. They, I, I'm teasing you a bit about it just because uh, you, you're going to tease me about reading too many books and I get to tease you about something. But this <laughs> sounds really cool, actually. I'm glad you did it, and I, I'm definitely going to pick some of these up. No, it's great. I do recommend P.D. James, and I, I will say there actually was a great adaptation of the 70 or the 80s novels I just mentioned that's going on right now on Acorn TV. But I was, I was a personal note that I have to add is that I read a taste for death. I think that was the first book I read that when I was just out of college and I was like struggling with like the idea of what kind of writer should I be? Should I be a writer? And I didn't realize how much, um, her like practical gruesomeness and kind of this, this edge of supernatural stuff that like isn't real, but like the characters believe it's real. You know, I, I didn't realize how much that got into my own DNA as a writer until I reread the book and I realized that, like, much like when I reread Vonnegut and Dostoevsky, I read those in high school, 
I reread them in like one of my grad programs and I realized, you know, oh, these were formative people for me as a writer. You know, like they somehow unknowingly shaped a lot of my imagination. And so that was actually part of the fun too was she was an influence on me without me really even knowing it, you know? That makes sense. And I, I, I've read uh, a novel you wrote, which I won't talk about, of course, but I, that makes sense. You know what I yeah. mean? I can see the yeah, connections the there. <laughs> yeah. uh, okay, Bill, uh, let's talk about Connie Willis. <laughs> yeah, it sounds good. Let's talk about Connie Willis. Um, so Connie Willis, we, of course, did our, our second big read this year on her wonderful book, Doomsday Book. Uh, so we've talked about her a bit on this podcast. I assume you've listened to that. But uh, she uh, is... Uh, is the most highly decorated science fiction author of all time uh, by most reasonable metrics. She's won something like 11 Hugos. And she was primarily active in like the 90s, I would say. Yeah. Uh, but she's still writing now. Uh, her last novel was in 2016. She won her last Hugo in 2010. So she's still a contemporary writer. Um, although I think, and we're not going to get into this, but she, I don't think she's as well known among sort of the current sci-fi crop for reasons that I don't fully understand because she's wonderful. She wrote... You know, I should have had the exact numbers here, but I don't. Uh, but she wrote a, a lot of books um, and a lot of short stories. And I read all but one of her full-length novels, uh, which I, I started but haven't finished. And I read all of the collected short stories, which is in four collections, two of which, uh, one of is a, they're both sort of best of, so there's some repeats. Um, but I, re- I read them again anyway, because they're generally really good. I read them in chronological orders, which was really fun to see her kind of develop as a writer. Uh, she was never bad, right? But it's really right. fun to see some of the sillier stuff she wrote uh, wrote earlier and then the much better stuff she wrote later and see that writer develop. That was really, really fun to do. Uh, I really encourage people to read an entire author in chronological order uh, if you ever get the desire to read an entire author, which not everyone has. But uh, because then you really do, like I said, get to see their craft develop. Um, and that was a lot of fun. Uh, she... If you read a lot of Connie Willis, she does have a lot of tricks that she likes to repeat over and over and over again, which are all very good tricks. I do think I maybe overdosed a little bit because yeah. when I read her last, I guess, really good novel, uh, Blackout All Clear, I was feeling a little bit like, yeah, I get it. You know what I mean? <laughs> which I don't think is probably fair no, for the yeah, book. Yeah. Um, so I don't think I liked Blackout All Clear as much as I would have if I had given myself more time. So I, I will come back to that one, I think. And Con- Christy, who was the guest on our Doomsday Book podcast, talked about some of this already uh, on that podcast, but Willis is often interested in characters who are trying to unravel some sort of scientific mystery and who are stimmied by failures to communicate, uh, often because of some sort of bureaucratic apparatus, which is screwing them up, right? Yeah. Uh, And so you see that in a lot of her books, Doomsday Book, which we already talked about, of course, uh, Mr. Dunworthy can't figure out how to get his, his student out of the Middle Ages because... In addition to the pandemic that's happening, like the bureaucracy of Oxford is constantly screwing him up. And we see that in a lot of her books. And she also really likes screwball comedies. And so a lot of the stories in particular feel very much like that. Um, And so it's fun to see these same themes over and over and over again. But let's talk about the actual books now so I can quit being general. Um, So (laughs) she wrote, I'm going to separate her books into a couple different categories. First, she wrote three sort of young adult books with her friend Cynthia Felice, uh, Water Witch, Light Raid and Promised Land. And those are not really terribly important. We're not going to talk about those particularly. They're kind of fun, but they're not serious. Um, Water Witch was her first novel, and they were all pretty early. I think she wrote Promised Land in 94. I'd have to double check that. Let's see. 97. I'm sorry. So it was a little bit later, but um, definitely not the major reasons anyone reads Connie Willis. Although they're, they're, they're a good time. They're fun, right? The thing she's most famous for, and I think rightly so, 
is a cycle of books that I think are called the Time Travel Series or the Oxford Series. They're not a series. They're not a trilogy or anything like that. But it's three novels and a short story, or I guess a novel, novella, I think is what it won the Hugo for. Firewatch, which is the first one, which is about... So they're all about a, uh, a future Oxford in about 2060, when in order to get your history degree, you have to go back in time and live for a while in the period you're researching and then come back and report on it, and all the various shenanigans that happen when things inevitably go wrong. And all the various ways that the space-time continuum doesn't actually allow you to screw up history, except when it does, uh, <laughs> and what that means. And they're all four of them dynamite, uh, yeah, truly they really outstanding are. works of science fiction. For all that, like I said, I, I was not as up on Black at All Clear. I do think that was, A, I still loved it, and B, I do think that really was just Willis fatigue. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so Firewatch is the first one, and it doesn't sit completely neatly with the other three, although it's still canon, and she actually refers to it in Blackout All Clear. But a guy goes to, he's supposed to go study with uh, St. Paul. He's supposed to, he, like, he spends several years studying ancient languages to go follow St. Paul around, and then because of a typographical error, he actually goes to St. Paul's during the Blitz, um, St. Paul's Cathedral, and works to try to save the cathedral and learn something about how people are important, uh, which sounds silly, but is, is, it's actually a wonderful story. Then there's Doomsday Book, which, of course, we did our big podcast about, but on the off chance you haven't listened to it, it's about a young woman who goes to the Middle Ages, only something screws up and she goes right there before the plague hits. And since we already talked about it, I'll spoil it. Uh, and the plague kills everyone, and it's horrifying and wonderful. Yeah. Um, to Say Nothing of the Dog is her most overtly comic of them. Uh, and she's, she's a very funny writer. She's often, I think, sometimes denigrated as just being a comedic writer, which is very wrong. Inaccurate, uh, but, but I think she that's is funny. Yeah. what happens. <laughs> And she is very funny. To Say Nothing of the Dog is a wonderful uh, sort of mix of a time travel caper and like an Austinian like comedy of errors and manners. Um, some people are supposed they're trying to rebuild Coventry Cathedral in the future after it was bombed out in World War II. And to do that, they need to find this one particularly ugly piece of art and try to get like <laughs> understand what it was. And for various shenanigans, this guy who is he's really time lagged, which means that he's been doing too many time travel jumps and is getting loopy, gets sent back to the 19th century for some reason he can't really remember and ends up tangled up trying to make sure that this one woman falls in love with this other guy because they think they've screwed up the continuum. And it's just a wonderful romp uh, that ends, I think, really beautifully as well. Um, and it's a blast. Uh, Blackout All Clear, a bunch of historians go back to England in World War II in the Blitz and get trapped there and can't figure out how to leave and have to figure out why why they can't go back through their little time portals and if they're going to die in the Blitz and if they're changing history because, of course, when you spend this much time in history, you're stepping on butterflies everywhere. And what does that mean? Uh, they're all incredible works of science fiction. The She wrote a couple of other novels, which aren't the time travel series. Her first one, Lincoln's Dreams, which I think we talked about briefly. It's about what if you were having Robert E. Lee's dreams. It's definitely a lesser work, but it ends beautifully. Um, Bellwether, which is about a woman who studies fads and the sort of slapstick comedy of errors that she gets tangled up in. It's also kind of whatever. It's fun, but it's nothing serious. Passage, which is a dark horse candidate for maybe the best thing she's ever written. Yeah. Um, which is a book that's hard to describe in a way that doesn't sound incredibly dull, but it's a 600 page book about what if you could study near death experiences by inducing them and in kind of with a drug and what does it mean that this one woman who's studying it keeps seeing the Titanic when she goes into these induced near-death experiences? It's a very surreal novel. Uh, there's a lot of running around this hospital getting sort of confounded by its ar uh, architecture. Uh, and it makes some really strong narrative choices that are beautiful. And it made me cry like a baby at the end. And I won't say what happens. But like, I mean, I don't weep. But I, I was I was weeping. <laughs> 
Uh, it's a really wonderful. I read book. it a long time ago, but it's actually. Um, I actually wrote an essay a few years ago, a while ago now, about like um, like three things that like basically made me cry. You know, I've had like a visceral reaction to. And passage was oh, o- that's right. Passage was almost the fourth thing I was gonna write about because I yeah, you've told me that. Yeah, I hit it. It, it just hit me so hard in like high school, whenever I read it, and it was it was one of those like formative things. It's hard to it was like it's hard to recapture, you know, why it hit me so hard. I think, but it was actually very validating when you told me off the podcast that it it walloped you because I was like, oh, good, because that book like upended me for you know a while about just like everything, you know, faith. <laughs> I don't know what being a writer, like life. It's yeah, it really it shouldn't have done that. You know, I don't know how she did it. Well, it's like I said, if you just said what the book was about to me, I would say I'm not going to read that, uh, but. And I had no idea what it was about when I started reading it, but it's uh, it's really something. And I'm not going to talk about it too much because I really don't want to spoil it because I, I do want you to read it. Yeah. Um, whoever's listening to this podcast, but and she also so she wrote another book which I haven't finished called Crosstalk, which is about some people who get some kind of quantum entanglement device that allows you to sense another person's emotions. Only, of course, it goes wrong. I don't know exactly what happens yet, but it's uh, nobody thinks it's anything like her best work, and so far I would agree, but I haven't finished it. Uh, she's written a number of short stories, which were collected in a couple of different books. And then she wrote a couple of novellas that were collected in a book called Terra Incognita. The novellas aren't, they're actually not particularly good. So I'm not going to talk about them. Um, (laughs) she really likes Christmas stories. So she writes one like almost every year and a bunch of them are collected in one book. Most of them are fairly silly. Like they're fun, but they're not. Uh, but there's a couple of really, really good ones. My mother, I bought her a copy of a book that has it because my mother is a choir director in Denver. And there's one of them is, uh, which one of Hugo for, called All Seated on the Ground, which is about how a, among other things, a Denver choir director saves the world. So that's a good, maybe not <laughs> save it, the world, the, but at least is the one, something major. Is the version you read, like the, the, the big one with a green cover or whatever it is? You yeah, know? yeah. Yeah. In the back of it, doesn't she list like um, movies to watch for Advent or whatever? Have you... Yeah, so she has a couple of lists in that uh, about, like, Christmas movies to watch that aren't terrible um, and Christmas TV shows and a couple other things. So one thing I came away from this is really loving Connie Willis as a person. Yes, that's what I was getting at, yeah. But she's just a delight. Like, whenever you watch an interview with her, she's just this, like, sort of charming sort of little old lady. I mean, she's not, you know, actually she is, like, 70-something now. No, but, she's like, older you know, now, sort yeah. of uh, Just super charming and super nice and... and uh, Apparently she she emceed like the Hugos and stuff for several years in a row and apparently it was everyone loved it all the time and she's just like she writes these little notes uh, after some of her short stories in the Firewatch collection and then in a best of collection and they're always just fun to read and they're super unpretentious but one thing I wanted to do is there's a speech she gave when she was the guest of honor at Worldcon in 2006 uh, which is printed in the back of a best of Connie Willis collection that I read. And I wanted to actually read a couple bits from it, because I think maybe more than anything else, it would be the best way of thinking about Connie Willis and how she is, right? So she gave this speech. She was the guest of honor at this major conference, um, and she thanked, you know, everybody who's ever been nice to her. And then she also said, but I want to read about, I want to thank, like, books, which is, you know, again, sort of a trite thing to do, except she did it really beautifully, right? And she talks a bit about how much fun she had reading them younger, when she was younger. And also, this is written... Uh, like it's a poem, right? Like she gave it as a speech, but it's written in little blocks of words. Oh, nice. Uh, very okay. much like it's yeah. sort of a contemporary poem with no rhyme scheme or rhythm. Uh, but, you know, it can work and like it does here. And so she says a couple of things here, like, because when I was 12, my mother died suddenly and shatteringly and my world fell apart. I had nobody to turn to but books. They saved my life. I know what you're thinking, that books provided an escape for me. And it's certainly true books can offer refuge from worries and despair. And she talks about that for a bit. 
And then she says, but it wasn't escape I needed when my mother died. It was the truth, and I couldn't get anyone to tell it to me. Instead, they said things like, there's a reason this happened, and you'll get over this, and God never sends us more than we can bear. Lies. All lies. I remember an aunt saying sagely, the good die young. Not exactly a motivation to behave yourself. (laughs) And more than one person telling me, it's all part of God's plan. I remember thinking, even at age 12, what kind of moron is God? I could come up with a better plan than this. And the worst lie of all, it's for the best. Everybody lied. Relatives, clergymen, friends. So it was a good thing I'd reached the D's. She was reading through the uh, library, the entire library. She says earlier, in alphabetical order. So it was a good thing I'd reached the D's because I had Marjorie Allingham and James Aggie's A Death in the Family and Peter Beagle's A Fine and Private Place and Peter DeVries's The Blood of the Lamb to Tell Me the Truth. And she goes through a whole series of quotes from everybody from C.S. Lewis to James Baldwin to, you know, and that's really the important thing about Connie Willis is because she's writing science fiction, much of which is, is at least very funny. And it's in you know, even sometimes a little bit formulaic, but the thing about her is the books are always very kind, even as they're satirizing things. And they're also completely un, um, completely unflinching in the face of like the truth. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. Like passage is a book about grief. And every time you think she's going to pull a punch or, make it easy or do something cheesy she doesn't uh sometimes in some ways that are really brutal um yeah and that makes the moments of sort of catastrophe or of of joy all the more powerful because like in doomsday book as we've already talked about everybody dies of the black plague except kivrin um and yet there's still tremendous joy and beauty and love in the world and that's the thing Connie Willis gets right better than most people I've read. Um, and it's incredible. And for all that, and it's one reason I get frustrated when people do dismiss her as primarily a comedic writer, because even to say nothing of the dog, which is, you know, it's a comedy, uh, ends up in a really beautiful place. And um, she's great. I guess that's really what I want. I mean, I could do like a deep dive in each of the books. I don't know if I want to do that because they would take too long to describe. But like Connie Willis is a profoundly beautiful writer in addition to being a lot of fun and she has her quirks and flaws and you know but uh the really good books are just best in class and they mean a lot to me i mean i I don't know what her beliefs are personally she's pretty coy about it but she talks a lot about singing in a church choir and if she's not some kind of christian when she writes these books i want to know what the heck she thinks she's doing (laughs) (laughs) um and it's a it's a form of faith and a form of theodicy and all these other questions that I find really moving and meaningful. I don't know if I agree with literally all of it, right? But it's it's exactly uh, yeah. it's really beautiful. And like as a Francis Bufford bit and unapologetic, I know we got to talk about Francis Bufford in every podcast. Amen. Right? And he, uh, I also reread unapologetic this year, so it's even on point. Uh, and he has a bit where he, he talks about the beauty of grace and so on as not being, you're going to be saved in some way from these bad things that are going to happen. Right. Like he, he taught, you know, people who have horrible things in their lives. It's not like something magically is going to change that, but it's the realization that there is these bad things and it recognizes them and it doesn't flinch from them. Right. Right. There is these bad things. And yet there is also more. Right. Yeah. And that's what Connie Willis's books uh, do most of the time. No, I I, I was going to say, well, it's, I mean, you, you hit it on the head in ways that I can only sit, you know, I can only echo. But truthfully, I think that was why Passage would still hit home if I, read, if I read it now. But when I read it when I was in high school, you know, it was one of the first books that tackled theodicy in that kind of unflinching way of saying, like, and one on one hand, I don't know. 
I don't know. I don't know why this bad thing happened. I have nothing to offer you except that it happened. While also saying it doesn't necessarily, you know, win, <laughs> right? Like <laughs> this yeah. bad thing is not the final word, but we're also not going to diminish the bad thing. And I, and it was, I needed to hear that. Um, and I think at some point, if you're a person of faith or not, I think at some point that is like the, the question of life that every existential crisis turns on. Like, why is this all this bull crap? <laughs> There's just so much of it and no one wants it. No one wants that there'd be bad things and we keep making bad things happen or suffering bad things that we don't know why they happened. Um, but no, I, I find Connie Wallace a profound writer and I'm reading Doomsday Book this year with you and Christy was a highlight of my reading year because... I think like you a few years ago, I, I kind of overdeed on her. Like, I really love Blackout and All Clear, and I, I think I've told you, you know, when I read it in college, for me it was her best. But I'm starting to wonder if it's whatever, whatever for major works I read last. That's probably her best book, yeah. you know. <laughs> um, but I read like you know I read Blackout All Clear, which is basically one novel, but it's split into two. So I read two novels, and I read you know one of her other good novels, and I kind of was like miffed, you know, because she does this thing where she kind of keeps the plate spinning plot wise for like 400 pages, you know, <laughs> like, like, like nothing really moves forward, even though action happens and it's really yeah. charming. And she pulls it off in a way that I'm not sure anyone else could that I've read, but you know, at, at some point, if you've read thousands of pages of that, it can be like, okay, please <laughs> can the next shoe <laughs> drop, you know, can the shoe just drop? But all that to say is I read doomsday book with you guys was a beautiful kind of reconnection with, the ways in which she pulls off, um, like you said, I think a, a kind of a, a meaningful you catastrophe in her work, right? It doesn't f ever feel cheap the way that these people find sort of a, you know, a moment of joy or whatever. Um, but yeah, no, I, I love that you read all of her. I also, I'm, I'm a little mad at too, you know, that you read all of her. Um, <laughs> cause you keep lapping me, Bill. <laughs> you know, I start, I read these people and then I put them on, you know, my, my philosophy for years was like, you should save writers so you can read them later when you're old. And, and then now it's like, Hey, rereading exists. You know, <laughs> you could just read all of them now and then read them again and enjoy them again. But I, I got to catch up now, you know, I got to read. Well, I'm not going to read some of her stuff, but i got to read more of her stuff. Well, I, like I said, I haven't finished Crosstalk, and there's two little novellas, which I don't think are major works. Uh, uh, I met a traveler from an antique land and take a look at the 5 and 10, which came out in the last few years, which I haven't read because they're not, or they were printed, but it was like once, and it cost $80 to get a copy. So I'm going to get an ebook, even though I hate it. And anyway, <laughs> uh, but she's really worth reading. And, you know, some of her lesser stuff is she's got a couple of bugaboos that are sort of tired. Like she really doesn't like like political correctness in so many words. And so some of the 90s stuff about that is like, OK, Connie. Yes, right. Thank you. Thank you, Aunt Connie. I understand. But uh, they're so, so fun most of the time. Sorry. It's so funny because that's exactly how I would describe P.D. James as thanks, Aunt Phyllis. <laughs> like, <laughs> but, but I kind of loved it because the best part of reading P.D. James was that she's so intelligent and unrelenting that even when you disagree with her, you kind of had to, like, listen. You know, you couldn't just, like, yeah. tune it out as Fox News or whatever. Um even her terrible lawyer book, like she, you know, she keeps talking about how this is the best system we have, even as like, what if these defense lawyers are saving murderers, you know? <laughs> yeah. I always love, people always ask, this is off topic. People always ask me like, so like, do you ever feel like your client's guilty? And like, I was like, I don't care about that at all. Like, I don't, <laughs> Right. <laughs> that's not my job. That's just not my job. Yeah. The state, if the state can't prove it, it doesn't matter. And 
if I let somebody get away with something horrible, like, I'm not saying I'm going to, like, love that, but I just don't care. That is, that means the prosecutor's screwed up is what that means. Like, I can't, not necessarily. There are cases that are hard to prosecute for various reasons. And there are cases that I feel uncomfortable about. But at the same time, I have to tell myself I don't care. And I really do a pretty good job of, like, that doesn't matter. I am the only person in the entire world, maybe, who has ever been on this person's side. Right. And right. I'm going to do it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, ideally, it's because the, the rightness of whatever we're doing systematically depends on all the pieces doing their job, right? Like, that's the whole idea, right? Is that, like, if you did your job less, then the process would be less effective, period, right? Like, that's the whole argument, isn't it? Yeah. Like, you know, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> it's it's an adversarial system, and maybe that's not the right, that's not how they do it in Europe. Maybe it's not the right way to do it. I don't actually have an opinion about that. Right, but yes, yeah. In the system we have, that's like, what I mean, yeah. if me and the prosecutor don't work, and the prosecutor has slightly different, like, they're not supposed to prosecute stuff that they, you know, under, they sometimes do, but they're not supposed to prosecute stuff they don't think they can win. It's not quite the same thing as zealous advocacy for a client. But, you know, if we get to the state where we're going to trial, both sides are supposed to try very hard to win that. And that doesn't mean that they can do unethical things. Like, you can't, like, hide evidence. I'm not saying right, that. Right, right. <laughs> um, but, you know, you need to be trying to win, and that's how the system is supposed to work. And so either we change the system or people like me need to try to win, right? Yep. That's also, it's fun to be prosecutors. They're they're always surprised. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to be mean because there's not very many prosecutors around here. And so if they ever listen to this, they'll know who I'm talking about. But it is always very fun to be a prosecutor. They're always like, what happened? The earth is upside down. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. And I'm on top of it. <laughs> I, I won this one. You know, and I'm going to lose the other 185 cases on my docket. But this one, yeah. And, of course, my clients always screw it up immediately afterwards. Very few of the clients I get big wins for don't then immediately screw it up and go to prison. But, you know, in the meantime. <laughs> well, you, like you just said it, though. You did your job to the best of your ability. That's the whole point. I talked a lot about Connie Willis and Faith. I, 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 you don't have to be a Christian to like Connie Willis. And I actually think a lot of people read her without even thinking about that dimension. But, Very much so, yeah. Uh, and so, you know, and, and, and she's not like a, it's not an evangelizing project. And, in fact, I think she, she basically never with a few exceptions, says anything remotely explicit about what she's doing, right? Um, this is not a book where Jesus comes down and says, hello, I am Jesus, and I'm here <laughs> to tell you why things are great. Short One short story that has Joseph and Mary in it, but it's not common. Uh, and so you don't have to be a Christian to like Connie Willis, but uh, I think if you are a Christian, you read Connie Willis, there'll be a lot there for you to like. Or possibly really dislike, depending on your doctrine. That's but. true. That's a good point. I was just going to say, though, I, I actually, a long time ago, that's why I wrote that piece about things that made me cry. I did feel like there's, um, you know, literature, books that you love, it's good to tell your testimony. You know, not like your spiritual testimony, but like, I think books need, they need that to, to keep living in the atmosphere, you know? <laughs> they need kind of these testimonies of experience. Um, and yeah. you and I happen to be... Uh, weird Christians. So, um, I was making a joke about how I was going to try to write some more for like the, you know, Christian socialist market. You know, there are dozens of us, dozens. And I'm gonna... <laughs> <laughs> You're going to have to like literally knock off Phil Christman or something. You know what I mean? Like that's what I have to do. <laughs> like there's... Phil, there can only be one. It's... <laughs> Seriously, I was like, there's like, it's like there's three of them. That's too many. <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, okay, let's uh, let's pivot real quick. I have some more questions about books for you, but I before I get there, I wanted to throw out our stats for this year. Um, which I meant yeah. to, I meant to do at the beginning, but I, I it's okay that we, I'm like that we're doing it now, because um, you know every year we try and read big books and we talk too long about it. That's the whole gimmick. Um, but I like to kind of I I use kind of a an audible guesstimate for a word count if I can't find an actual word count. But I try and count up all the words for the books we read this year, and I'm I'm including this year I'm including the um, 
the thing itself, which was not one of our four big reads, but was a bonus podcast we did with Martin Wendell Jones. Um, so the total number of words estimated that we read this year for this podcast was 1,108,660 words, um, which is pretty good, I think. And uh, about half of those were Kristen Lavren's daughter. <laughs> <laughs> It's a big book, friends. <laughs> it's a really big book. Um, I, I, you know, I did something new this year, though, is that I was curious, like, how long we've talked about, you know, these long works of fiction. Because we only do, like, four or five podcasts a year, but if you're listening, I'm sure you'll agree, they're pretty long podcasts. So we, um, we've talked, not including this podcast, for 10 hours and six minutes about these books. And then I actually I used Audible's little like conversion equation um, to figure out that that equals, if we were like an, if we were an, audi- an Audible book, which you and I, me especially, we get talking, you know, much too quickly <laughs> during this podcast. So we're definitely faster than the rate they've given us. But we're about, with the podcast we've done this year, we're at about 93,000 words, um, 94,000 almost. So it's a whole novel of its own you know, the stuff we've produced. And I think it's really better than any of the books we read. I think really I think when you so. look at yeah. the, what we did, I think it's uh, significantly better than Sigrid's. No, the fumbling, <laughs> no. the stumbling, you know, it's all, it's all worth it in the end. But I will say we, we were pretty on point for word count. We were only like 80 words off of last year's word count. So pretty, cons- pretty, pretty consistent. But okay, Bill, I did have a few more questions. So you read... Go for it. You had 104 books this year. Um, mm-hmm. Congratulations. I, I'll, I'll keep fitting that in there just as much as possible for everyone listening. Uh, wh- so uh, what did you think you were going to read that just didn't happen at all? <laughs> so I, when I set this project, I think I said this last year. I think I said I was maybe going to do it in the podcast we did, uh, our year in review for 2020. I had read the first book of the Aubrey Maturin books by Patrick O'Brien and the first book of the Hornblower uh, series by C.S. Forrester, and I said, you know, if I read all of those, that'll be a big chunk of it. And I didn't read a single one of them. I don't know what happened. I don't have them. I didn't buy them. I didn't read them. I just didn't do that. Uh, and that was a little surprising. And then I also had Churchill's History of the Second World War and thought I would do a few of those and just didn't even open them. Um, so that when I predicted what I was going to read this year, way I would off. say about a third of what I was going to read just didn't even happen, <laughs> even a little bit. Yeah. And I don't know why. I, that was, there's a couple things, like I was going to finish Connie Willis and I didn't quite do it, and then I was going to read, and we'll talk about this more later, but the second half of Gene Wolfe's The Wizard Knight, and then I had kind of a weird couple days at the end of the year and didn't get around to it. So I didn't quite read what I thought I was going to, but um, yeah, I don't know why that happened. Well, I know why the last two happened, but I don't know why the Napoleonic Wars I say you, you g- I was just going to say you gave up your Napoleonic Wars theme, you know? We talked about that yeah, last I guess. year. That was like a weird, <laughs> a weirdly salient part of your reading in 2020. <laughs> Um, Bonaparte's no longer for Bill, I guess. That's fine. No longer Bill. for me. Yeah. Um, I read a lot about the Blitz. Uh, oh gosh, that's true. So Connie Willis talks a lot about the Blitz, and then Francis Bufford's book was about the Blitz, and there was a couple of others that at least referenced it. Uh, so I guess that was my historical figure was World War II in London, um, which was you know there's a lot going on there, so that was good. It's very busy. It's true. Um, I <laughs> I did. So what surprised you most this year? I mean, you read books, you know, I don't know. You read, you read so many books. I kept trying to like narrow down the books I was going to ask you about. And I have a few I want to ask you about, but genuinely I was like, he read too many books. You know, I have, I have too many questions about too many books, but I, I was curious, you know, in, in this year of like wild reading, uh, what kind of surprised you most? However that mean, whatever that means to you. Um, so there were a couple things I read that I, wasn't 
so I, I ended up reading, again, at the end of the year, I had kind of a weird couple days, and so I pivoted to reading Ursula K. Le Guin's uh, Earthsea trilogy, um, The Wizard of Earthsea, The Tombs of Atuan, and, or Atuan, and The Farthest Shore. And I had heard good things about them and had read the first one a long time ago. I was unprepared for how very, very good they were, which is dumb because Ursula K. Le Guin is great. Right, she but is great. But I just had kind of was like, these will be fine, and I'll read these. And I was like, no, these are some of the best books I've read all year. Uh and I wasn't quite prepared for that, which is, again, a silly, but that did surprise me. Oh, uh, so another thing I did, I listened to some audiobooks, particularly when I was working as a prep cook there for a few months, which I had to quit doing, as I think I said last time I was <laughs> two times ago that I was going to have to. I did have to quit. Yeah. Uh, and I listened to some audiobooks. I was surprised by how much I really didn't like Wuthering Heights. Um, I know, which I'm still worried. really didn't I'm like I'm still Wuthering worried Heights. about. I loved that when I was in college. <laughs> and I'm worried that I was dumb. <laughs> I don't. I, I finished it. I didn't think it was a bad book. I just finished. This is the most deeply unpleasant book I think I've ever read. And I have read That's books fair. about some really gruesome stuff happening. And I also just like, why does no one just kill Heathcliff? Like, I know one guy tries half-heartedly at one point, but yeah. like, I feel like if I was going over to see, like, like the maid, I can't remember her name, but the one Nelly, I think, right? No, oh, whatever. The 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 sort of sub. Yeah, I know. It's that about. Victorian thing where nobody can just tell that story. There's be five nested sub narrators. But she goes there and Heathcliff says, listen, I'm going to do terrible things to this woman I've married and that's my plan and I'm going to treat her like dirt and I'm, she's a worm beneath my feet. And I'm like, why doesn't she just kill him? Like, she could just poison him. And I feel like that would be totally justifiable. And of course, the real, I understand why the actual answer to that. But I was just so, I had sort of little patience with Heathcliff yeah. at that point that I really was just looking for someone to off him. Which again, somebody does try. It's not really a fair criticism, but he doesn't try very hard. Um, and I guess the thing is like, Throughout the book, like, I can't remember her, her name, but the, the his his first wife, who's the young woman, um, like, her, the guy's like, here's the gun. All you have to do is open the, unlock the door. And everyone's like, oh, you can't do that. And I'm like, I feel like you should. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> he's a horrible man. It's pretty clear that he's a rapist. Like, just let it. Yeah. Just open, unlock the door. It's all you got to do. I don't think anybody would criticize you for that. Um, you know, it's. That's kind of a. Dumb I, no, I was going to say, but, it's funny. <laughs> I feel like sometimes. Um, Everyone in the critical world hates talking about like likable characters or unlikable or relatable, you know, which it's fine. I, I get why that's a annoying way to dissect everything that you watch, read or listen to. But um, I do think sometimes there are characters or characterizations, maybe it's more accurate, that just get beneath your skin and it doesn't matter how objective or intelligent you are, you're, you're out, you know, you're done with that. And that, that happened to me a little bit, like I like Graham Greene a lot, but um, I read The Heart of the uh, Matter, I think that's the one I read, um, a, a year ago or two, and it's really like a lot of the stuff that Graham Greene is praised for is all present. Um, it's happening in sort of like, you know, British colonial 20th century Africa, a lot of the, the relationship between this like kind of policeman and this, you know, French criminal, it's all very like dynamic and dirty and whatever. But the heart of the book is like, this guy is in love with two women, you know, and he can't figure out like, oh, how do I, oh, yeah. Yeah, how do I get out of this? And I'm always like, you just, you choose one and you choose your wife. Like you dummy. Like <laughs> it's what you do. <laughs> like, like this isn't a hard moral question. Oh, my loins ache for someone else. Yeah. You just don't do that. I don't know. I, it's one of those, like, it's one of those problems I have where like, I don't understand this is going to be like Joel's square hour, but I don't, I have, I have no understanding <laughs> of affairs. Do you know what I mean? Like, like I don't understand. They just seem 
they just seem like such a headache. You know what I mean? Like from the beginning <laughs> of starting an affair, it's like, well, now I have to lie about like about what time I go to work. You know what I mean? Like that's the the most basic part of my life. Like I have to lie about everything. Like just logistically, they must be a nightmare. I feel the same about again, just Joel Square. I feel the same about drugs. Every time I have like one of my friends who like, you know tries to pitch me on marijuana or whatever else, it's like, I just, that sounds sleepy, do, you know, sleepy time, Joel. I don't need to be more <laughs> exhausted or see things. You know what I mean? Like, I'm, I'm already tired. I'm already weird, you know? Um, but I do. I have this, like, aversion to a certain kind of, you know, adulterer in fiction where it's like, I just am not convinced by you because it doesn't make any sense to me, you know? It just seems like you're an idiot. Yeah, so I, it's funny you said, I've never been a weed guy, partly because everywhere I've lived, it's been illegal, but we were in Colorado over the summer, and I was like, what the heck, right? Let's give it a shot. Right. Uh, I mean, I had smoked weed a few times, but not, and I've always been drunk at the time, so I was like, I don't have enough scientific rigor to tell <laughs> what is just, I've had a lot of whiskey. Right. Uh, um, but we got some weed gummies, and uh, after we'd finished our big D&D game that we ran, which was really fun, um, amazing um, I took a little more than I should have, and about an hour later, I was like, I can't tell how much time is passing between the words in this sentence. <laughs> And I, for some reason, I didn't know that was one of the, like, it's, it's well-documented. That's one of the things that right. happens. But I was not prepared for that. And I don't remember if you were there for that portion. No, I, I was, was gone. Goofy. I know. Was... I was, I'm really <laughs> bummed, to be honest, that I missed it. <laughs> I was real goofy. Uh, and I don't know if I need to do that again. Um, yeah, you know, honestly, anyway. I had someone describe a similar experience to me. And I, I got, like, a concussion when I was playing soccer when I was in college. And I... Like the mm. the game ended, and I I was surprised. Like I, I kept telling my my then girlfriend now you know I, now wife I was like we just started though, we just started this game, and someone else was like that's how I feel when I'm high man. And I was like well that's a concussion. I don't want to have like a <laughs> a concussion. Yeah. You know. Again, this is Joel being boring and square, but um but yeah. So I I, I do I do feel like though you know you have these reactions to characters and it's it's over. Yeah, and I also just. Every one of the book is awful, and that's fine. Like, I've read books like that, but for whatever reason, I just hated all of them. Yeah. So I'm not saying it's a bad book exactly, but uh, I really didn't like it, and I was surprised by that because I've read Bronte stuff. I guess I've just read Jane Eyre is what I've read, which is I understand a different person. Yeah, but, but it, uh, Jane Eyre is good. I mean, I, people want to hate it for a lot of reasons. It is a good book. So uh, that might be the biggest surprise. Uh, you know, there were books I liked more or less than I thought, but I th- th- those might be the biggest surprises. Well, then let me, uh, let, mm-hmm. me, let, me, let me pin you down on a few titles, that, that, if that's okay. No, I don't want to talk about books. That's not what I'm here for. We should I'm just here to say the word 104 a lot. Uh. <laughs> oh, that's really funny. Um, I was going to say, so you read, uh, but you read some Tom, oh my gosh, Tom Bizzle, Bissell? I'm not sure if it's Bissell or Bissell, and every time I say his name, I intend to look it up, and I never do. Yeah. But yeah, I did. Well, he's a journalist you and I both like, but you read some of his actual fiction, right? I did. I read his collection of short stories, God Lives in St. Petersburg, which was published in 2005, which was before a lot of the stuff that I had liked him for. Um, I didn't like it very much. Um, so Bissell, I'm going to say Bissell because he doesn't sound like that a good. cleaner when yeah, I do it that, that way. Sounds good. <laughs> um, so uh, I, I got into Bissell because he was writing about video games in a really smart way, but in a way that was separate from all of the games bloggers that I was sort of in this mix with back in like 2012. Uh, he used to write for Grantland about video games right. and said some really smart things. He wrote a book about video games, which is kind of fluffy, but uh, he, he wrote some really good stuff as well. A really good essay about playing Grand Theft Auto 4 while in Russia and doing a prodigious amount of cocaine, which is actually a very good essay. Um, Bissell is, uh, I like him a lot. I do think he's kind of a stepstone writer for me in that I think I've maybe gotten to the point where I don't like him as much as I used to, yeah. but I did learn a lot from him in what I read. Like I read his book Magic Hours last year, year before, which is a collection of essays. And I found it 
good in places and also kind of annoying in places. Uh, God Lives in St. Petersburg is a collection of short stories about Americans misbehaving in Central Asia. They're all, they're not connected, but that's, that's the sort of thing they're all doing. Uh, Werner Herzog, like, loosely adapted one of them, but... What? I say loosely, because, yeah, uh, I say loosely because the new story takes, the, the movie takes place in Bolivia, so I'm, I'm pretty sure it's very loose. Okay, yeah. Um, and that's probably the best story in the bunch, um, but... Uh, Bissell himself lived in Central Asia for a while in the Peace Corps. He wrote a whole book about that, not just about that, but partly about that, called Chasing the Sea, which I read recently, not this year, but recently, and liked a fair amount. Um, and I found them kind of boilerplate. They're all kind of like, American gets in trouble by being a dumbass. Right. <laughs> uh, he wrote one story about a boy who's basically, like a young man who's like the son of an ambassador and is just sort of a party boy and gets in trouble, and I thought it was super unconvincing. Uh, they're not bad stories, I'm not saying that, and they're you know, certainly better than anything I've ever written, but they're not particularly good. And so I, I think, and I want to read some of Bissell's more recent stuff, but I, I think that I may have sort of moved past him, uh, which is, again, a ridiculous thing to say. He's a better writer than I am, but um, I think my tastes in essayists as well as writers has changed. Yeah, I uh, That might be what I have no, to say. No, I haven't read him in a long time. I, I was partly curious, because he actually... For whatever reason, I, I never wanted to read his fiction. And I feel like sometimes you can tell, sometimes when a journalist is good in a certain way, I'm not sure I can describe it, you can almost tell that their fiction's not going to be good or as good, in my opinion. Yeah. And I, I, it happens now and then, and it's always... It, it, I, actually, it happened recently. Um, I read James Wood this year, um, who is a you know the English uh, critic. He lives in America. Um He's a really great critic. Some people don't like him. I don't know why. Probably because probably they're wrong, and I'm correct. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but he's a really great uh, essayist, you know? Not just a critic. He's a good essayist. He has truly great prose at times. But um, I've never read one of his novels. He has three or four novels now. And I, it's just because I, I just know that they're, they're going to be, like, competent, but they're not going to be great, you know? There's something about it that he's, like, his mode is in criticism – and some people can do both, like Zadie Smith, who's kind of a genius in both fields, and maybe even slightly better as a critic, to be honest, and she's a great author. But, like, it's really, you know, I think really it's so – It's I think a lot of fiction writers can do essays more easily than great essayists can do fiction a lot of times. And I'm not sure if Tom Bissell's a great essayist, but I did like him. You know, I haven't read him in a long time, but I liked him a lot when he was with the Grantland crew. Um, well, he's written some essays that I, I still will defend to the death. He wrote a really good one about – um, so he's from Escanaba, Michigan, which is in the UP, uh, and he wrote an essay about going back to Escanaba when Jeff Daniels was there filming a movie, uh, and it's a really good essay. Everything about that um, sounds great. Everything you said, I liked all the it's words. It's really, really good. I'm not sure where it is other than in Magic Hours, but it's on the internet somewhere. It might be for Harper's. So this year, we also, we both read The Hobbit. Yeah, I listened to Andy Serkis's audiobook. Oh, yeah, that's right. You uh, told me that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How was that? So Andy Serkis is great, although he shouldn't try to sing the songs. Uh, which is a position I think I had about the guy about who read Lord of the Rings last yeah. year. Um, <laughs> but Andy Serkis, uh, I'm not saying he can't sing. I think he probably can, but he's always trying to do like a sort of a gruff Andy Serkis voice for it, and it just comes off as confusing, uh, particularly when he does the um, the big Far Over the Misty Mountains Cold poem, and they use the tune from the uh, Howard Shore soundtrack to the Peter Jackson movies, which is incredible. It's yeah, a wonderful it's a great tune. song. G- great setting. Yeah, uh, And he just can't do it. Uh, quite right, uh, but it's good. I, you know, I, uh, I, I deliberately. Well, I was doing my book blog still when I read The Hobbit, and I was like, I don't want to talk about Tolkien in public. Uh, <laughs> I like the book because I can argue about Tolkien longer than most people I know. I'm not like a Tolkien scholar. I haven't read a lot of the apocryphal stuff, and uh, like I, I can't name too many of the Velar. You know what I mean? Right. But um, I, I still can argue about Tolkien all day. 
And I, I like The Hobbit. It was fun to listen to again. Um, I love The dwarves the are weirder in The Hobbit than I remember them being. Oh, yeah. Um, and some other stuff about maybe the dwarves being anti-Semitic makes a little more sense in The Hobbit than it does in The Lord of the Rings. I don't think it's quite a meaningful critique, but at least I at least get it a little better having read The Hobbit again for the first time in 20 years. Because it's a bit about, like, dwarves not being heroes and, like, they'll they'll do what you they pay you to do. You, know, you have to do right. They, they will pay you to do things, but they're not going to be heroes on their own account and so on. Which I think is part of the basis of that. I can't remember the, the... There's a big paper about it. But it doesn't matter. I'm not going to talk about that. But uh, I enjoyed The Hobbit a lot. It is a blast. His children's fiction, of which there is The Hobbit and, like, Rover Random and, I guess, Farmer Giles of Ham, right. uh, I think is unfairly slept on because he's got a really playful and delightful tone when he's writing for kids. And, uh, yeah, it's fun. I also forgot that The Hobbit that we've all read is not actually the original Hobbit because Gollum definitely just gives the ring away the first time. And he retcons it later. Uh, to be the scene we've all read oh, because you wrote Lord of the Rings right. and realized it didn't make sense, which I kind of forgot about. Um, I totally forgot about that. <laughs> and certainly the version I listened to is the one we're all familiar with. But uh, yeah, I forgot when he talks about Bilbo telling everyone a different story, that's actually an in-universe explanation for why The Hobbit you read in 1938 or whatever didn't <laughs> play out like that at all. <laughs> I, I At one point I knew that, but I had completely memory hold that. I just know I, I just wanted to I wanted to bring up the Hobbit just because I, I do feel like um, whenever I read the Hobbit, I always feel like I come away with like no notes, you know, like I I, I don't think yeah. I don't think it's better than it's, <laughs> it's not better than Lord of the Rings. It's not like the best thing ever. Like I'm not saying that. Some people, one person one time accused me of not liking adult books because I liked the Hobbit so much and I wasn't praising Lord of the Rings enough. My 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 reaction was kind of like. I, I, do you think Lord of the Rings is like, <laughs> I don't know, particularly like mature? I mean, it is, but like, I don't know. <laughs> but like, uh, I do think The Hobbit, there's something complete about it. You know, like uh, yeah. Lord of the Rings is so ambitious that it has these like awkward, you know, it has an awkward rhythm. It has awkward pacing at times, partly because we're also familiar with the movies as well, which is a point I think you've made before. Um, yeah. but you know, but even without the movies, there's definitely like, he's, he's figuring out so much as he wrote it, that there's just a certain, uh, you know, weirdness to it. Whereas the Hobbit, as weird as it is, especially like the ending, you know, as C.S. Lewis once said, it's sort of this delightful Lewis Carroll type romp. And then it's like Beowulf, you know? <laughs> For <no> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it also has a weird, you know, kind of jarring element to it. But I always, honestly, I always come away thinking just, just like, that was great. I have I have basically no notes. You know, I didn't want it to be faster or slower. I thought it was like just a pleasure to read. Well, I always think that it would make a lot of sense to understand Tolkien as like outsider art, rather than yeah, that's interesting. As like, because he really is just working through his weird projects, and the fact that it took off so much and ended up being the sort of building stone for a whole genre is deeply weird like it is a much weirder play like a much weirder rock on which to build your church than like the other fantasy stuff at the era you know yeah and i also think to some extent that the lord of the rings is not actually very much like a lot of the stuff that comes after it but you know it's a lot makes a lot more sense to just keep doing conan because conan is much more comprehensible than the lord of the rings and the silmarillion and the hobbit which is just a a, a weird project it's, and a wonderful it's so project. weird no it but, is <laughs> It's so bizarre. It is a deeply weird thing. <laughs> well, I, I love I love the Hobbit and the sorry I, I love um, Lord of the Rings so much. I'm reading through it right now slowly. I'm actually listening to it like you did, you know. And it is funny how yeah. how the songs like I keep having to fast forward them, you know. Um, <laughs> but uh, well, there's so many of them in the first book. <laughs> oh my gosh, there's so many of them. <laughs> I did want him to calm down a little bit, Tolkien, you know. Um, but uh, I, I love how often you'll get like. Um, this epic battle that's like, you know, like even Helm's Deep, very short 
amount of the book, right? Yeah. Almost nothing. And then a much longer period of the book is um, Gimli, Legolas, and Aragorn sitting at um, Isengard, the you know wrecked Isengard with mm-hmm. uh, Merry and Pippin, and they're just like eating cold cuts and smoking pipes. <laughs> it's like a that section's like twice as long <laughs> as Helm's Deep, and I I do think that's it's how do you, you know like he became like you said the touchstone for all high fantasy afterward, but he he kind of like. It's like everyone else cared about Helm's Deep, and, and he cared about Pipeweed, you know? And I, I do think that that's what keeps him fresh, even after having read a bunch of his imitators. You go back to Tolkien, and his interests, they're just a little more bizarre and a, a, a little times more charming and disarming than I think just, like, you know, the epicness that everyone loved about it when they first read it. Like Helm's Deep in particular, I just watched the movies a few days ago uh, on a marathon, which is a great time. Yeah. Um, and, like, Helm's Deep is... A significant portion of that movie. Oh yeah, uh, and it's you know it's a great. I mean, it's there's a re, it's famous for a reason. It's an incredible battle sequence, just a triumph of of uh, everything about it. You know, but like, you know, like I think the actual description of the battle in the book is like twenty pages long. Oh, it's like, very it's not... short. No, it really is. It's not long at all. <laughs> like, yeah, then they fought and they killed all the orcs, and then the trees <laughs> killed them all. Yeah, and, uh, that's kind of what happened at Helm's Deep. And then anyway, Gimli talked about the glittering caves of Agaron for a very long time, <laughs> which is wonderful. And I mean. Like legitimately wonderful. Like I, I love uh, it. Lord yeah. of the Rings is is a triumph, but it is a deeply weird book. It is weird, and I think people aren't ready for that. And so they read it, and they're like, "I'm sorry, we're spending how much time with Tom Bombadil?" And I'm like, "Yeah, this is the book. Like, this is actually what it is." Well, uh, like, yeah. well, you and I first, <laughs> we're Tom Bombadil apologists. You know, let's just get that on record. <laughs> and part of it is because if you can't suffer through Tom Bombadil, you're not going to appreciate the rest of the book. I agree. Uh, I totally agree. This weird stuff is actually what the book is, right? Like the the um, the ring is destroyed like two chapters in to the re- to the second half of the Return of the King, and the rest of it is about what happens on the way back and, and so on. Right? Like it is not paced the way you think it is. Uh, never mind the movies. Just it's, at first no, glance, it's bizarre. It is paced yeah, strangely. And it's also why the scouring of the Shire is maybe the most important chapter, and the fact that they I cut know. it is understandable for filmmaking reasons, <laughs> but is also completely indefensible for thematic reasons. Well, especially when you you made a director's cut. You know what I mean? Like you have like an extra hour you've added to these films. You couldn't even. The most inexplicable <laughs> choice there is that they cut all the stuff with Saruman and the Return of the King oh, until the extended edition, yeah. which is completely indefensible. Yeah. Like he's basically your face villain for the other two movies. What are you doing? No, it's anyway. it's very weird. I agree. Um, I do. Christopher Lee was really mad about it, and he was right. No, he was totally right. Yeah. No, I was going to say though. So on on the subject of like touchstones of their genre being much weirder than people think they are. I reread Pride and Prejudice this year, which I think you read recently. Yeah, um, uh, yeah, a couple, years, couple ago, years ago, maybe. Yeah, but it, it, I read it in college, and I it, it, it completely surprised me. I, I read it for actually a, a class in Oxford. And I had the you know I had the the Oxford essay question, which was something like, "Is Jane Austen a rationalist in a romantic age?" You know, you're you're, you're supposed to like take apart the word romantic to mean like the era of literature and also romance literature, right? Yeah. I killed it on that essay. The only essay I did great on. <laughs> um, but, um, but I remember it, it blew my blew my top off when I was in college because I had not read her yet because I I thought she was what the movies think she is, you know, kind of a sentimentalist. But he, here's this, you know, in some ways inventor of the rom com. You know, she she didn't invent it, but she surely did put it on the map, even for like the Victorian age who loved her, right? Like a lot of the things that she was playing with that was, you know, not original to her per se, but like 
because of her popularity, they became codified in rom-com or in romantic books of all kinds, right? They became the way you told a romance story of that ilk. You know, people don't, you know, the two main characters don't like each other through a series of mishaps. They, they stay apart, and then they come together at the end. But much like Lord of the Rings, it is paced way differently than every other yeah. thing like that. You know within like two chapters that Darcy's in love with Elizabeth. You know it very, very early. And um, at the end of the book, when he actually proposes correctly, it's a paragraph. And it's not in dialogue. It's a paragraph of him proposing and her accepting. And then the next chapter, brilliantly, is the fallout of having to talk to everyone who thinks you hate a man about why you're going to marry him. They don't show that in the rom-com, right? Like, her, like Elizabeth has to go to everyone she respects and tell them not only that she was wrong about Darcy, which hurts her vanity, but also she now has to convince them that she's right again, you know? Like, yeah. a, like everything that, you know, composes her, her self-dignity, that she is someone who has correct opinions, has to be torn down and then built up again <laughs> in order to convince people that she's not marrying him for money, you know? But also, you know... It's just also too sarcastic to ever, <laughs> you know, to ever, to ever fall into the sentimentalism of its genre. But it is. It reminded me of Lord of the Rings as far as like, she emphasizes stuff that other people don't care about, and a lot of her imitators took the things that she actually cares less about and made them the whole the whole genre. You know. I uh, so I read Pride and Prejudice for the first time maybe five years ago, and you know I I, I assumed it was good, you know, but like High School Bill was like ah oh, that's sort of boring chiclet stuff uh, right. because high school Bill was a jerk. Uh, but <laughs> you know, a lot of people talk about it. It's like, Oh, it's so romantic. And, and, and it is, but yeah, yeah. it's also the funniest thing I've ever read or maybe oh, I, it's I don't laugh know. Out it's loud. close. Yeah. And it's satire. It is not like, it's not just like funny quips. It's like, we're going to take a turn around the room to show our best. It's very funny. I don't. And, and the sentences are 800 pages long and it's wonderful every time because that's how people are talking in these long sort yeah. of ridiculous stream of consciousness. For, like it's, it's wonderful, and I was not prepared to like it nearly as much as I did. No, I, I I didn't realize how much of of her intelligence and wit. Like, um, you know, we we owe a lot to her for the invention of Oscar Wilde. You know, <laughs> absolutely. Um, yeah. When I, I read it out loud, which is a very good way to read Jane Austen, not just to listen to it. I think it's actually to read it out loud is a really good way to read it because you really have to get into the rhythm of the sentences and like figure out where to breathe is hard, you know, <laughs> and it's, it's a really fun way to get nitty gritty. And I actually think reading books out loud, which I haven't done much for a couple of years is a really wonderful way to really understand a text. I don't know if I've ever understood a text better than it's been one I've had to read out loud and sort of talk about with someone, you know what I mean? Uh, it's just a lot of fun. It's also, you know, hard, but anyway, so I know this is still kind of like just me questioning you, Hour, but I, I, I have one other book. I actually like several, but I have one other book I want to ask you about. You read a David Weber book this year? He's like, he's one of the, the great library staples, you know, like when you shelve books, we're always shelving books, you know. He's one, he has his own great section of, you know, unending titles. How, how is he? <laughs> so David Weber wrote a couple other things, but he's primarily famous for, and I read the first book in this, the Honor Harrington series. And then it's got some spinoffs, too. I think there's like 11 in the main series. I, I don't know. And then a lot of spinoffs. So Honor Harrington is deliberately it's like 98. Here, let me look it up. One minute. 93. Okay. Uh, so 93. Uh, he, the, the Honor Harrington books are very explicitly Horatio Hornblower, but a chick and in space. Uh, and he's not oh. shy about it. Uh, we, that's what did it we talk about David Weber last year? 
I think I told I was maybe going to read it. Uh, maybe that's what it is. But no, what you just described was t- totally sorry. It just lit off a fuse in my head that like you've told me this sentence before because it's a very memorable sentence. <laughs> <laughs> and it, and it's very like, her name is Honor Hair H H. Like he's not shy about it. That's literally what he's doing. And it's I read the first one. I haven't read the others. They may be better or worse. Can't speak to that. Uh, the first one is kind of fun. Uh, it's it's hard sci-fi of the, I'm going to stop this action sequence and give you four pages about how the FTL drive works. Uh, <laughs> which was It's like the climactic action sequence of the book. I'm not even kidding. And he's oh like, all right, gosh. so <clears throat> listen, before I can explain this, it's not quite this, but it's pretty close. Like Before I can explain the way this cool action sequence works, we got to talk some more about the FTL drive. So I've already told you X, Y, and Z about it. Let's really get into the A, Bs, and Cs of how this works. And I'm like, okay, David, this is a weird place to put this, man. But yeah, let's go. Uh, and the thing is, it is actually pretty cool, uh, like the hard sci-fi of it. And he keeps the theme because, like, you you sail on these like hyperspace corridors with literal sort of sails of energy, maybe not energy exactly, like radiation that you put out to sail on them. And it, you know, so which works for the Horatio Hornblower thing. And right. it's pretty fun. Um, the politics of the book are disastrous, uh, and I'm not going to get into it right now. And obviously, to some extent, if you're willing to sign up for Horatio Hornblower in space, you got to kind of be willing to put up with some of that. Uh, but like the way the book treats the natives of the nearby planet is 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 bad. Uh, <laughs> It's the sort of book, and I talked about this a little bit in my book blog of it, uh, but it's it's competence porn, right? Right. Like, it's yeah. sort of the Heinlein, and just, I mean, Willis does it to some extent, but, like, really the Heinlein thing of, like, our hero is the only smart and intelligent and stubborn enough human on planet Earth, and everyone else is a screw-up, and I'm going to do it anyway. So, Honor gets st- sent to the worst posting in the galaxy, which is a Basilisk Station, which is this backwater place, except that it's also a major strategic place of strategic value because of all the wormholes where they open up um and she has this impossible task of trying to sort of quell a native uprising which is more complicated than that but still uh and then also as it turns out there's maybe a secret plan by the evil space communists to you know launch an attack and she has to foil that and she is using a spaceship which is in bad shape and hasn't been equipped properly and a crew that is kind of a fool's war that's, that's a sci-fi reference, by the way. I'm killing it. Uh, but kind of a fool's war, like, group of cast-offs and make them work. And it's it's fun. It's not high art. And he's definitely, like, Otter Harrington is definitely David Weber's type. You know what I mean? Like, this is not the sort of right. woman who is, like, really a... She's almost a... She's not exactly a fetish object. That's probably overstating it. But it's, like, close. Um, she's always, like, looking at the camera and talking about how she's not very pretty, too, which is, like... And you can just tell David being, like, but she doesn't know she's beautiful. And it doesn't really matter. <laughs> but on the other hand, she's also, like, a, you know, a bad space captain with a cool space cat who, like, can punch people and command a starship. And, and honestly, the action sequences are really cool. Um, I don't think I'm going to read the sequels anytime soon. Um, but, you know, it was a good time. Also, there's a million of them, and I just only have so much patience for that. I'm always well. I'm always curious about these staples because I I don't read a lot of them. You know, they don't seem to like be my jam usually. But I, I had someone recently telling me that Sue Grafton, who did the ABC like murder series, oh, yeah, you know? A is for whatever, yeah, yeah A is for Albatross for, or whatever. Yeah, it is. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so and she like died at Y. She didn't quite. She didn't get the Z. <laughs> Oh, okay. um, yeah, so she had like a moment there where when she passed, everyone was like, oh, no, you know, we're not going to get the last book. But um, I honestly, she has so many books besides those ones that I did the kind of snobbish thing of assuming she's not very good. And she might not be. Mm. I have not read her yet. But I had someone recently talking about like 
it may have even been like an, uh, a somewhat, a buddy then I also like read something about it where she kind of talks about like her favorite person is uh, Ross McDonald, her favorite writer, who is one of my favorite <laughs> crime writers. Um, he's in the noir, in the noir genre and he, he's incredible. But, um, but basically I'm always like, I kind of love it when truthfully, like my own snobbishness is turned on itself, you know, like PD James is actually probably one of those too, where, you know, her books are very popular and when they came out, they were New York times bestsellers and they have very like, you know, pulp, not even pulpy, but like a certain publisher will sometimes make them look very popular. You know what I mean? Like right. yeah, almost yeah. cheap looking so that people will read them, <laughs> which is a funny way of doing books, but that's how it works. Um, but yeah, so I'm always curious about like, I, I, I don't think I have the, the time or the tolerance to read David Weber or, or other people like him, but I'm always curious, like which one of these popular authors is actually great, you know? Cause there's a few yeah. of them are like, uh, um, John Wilson, um, kind of, he used to do a lot of editing for various places. Books and culture was his big one. He's like the most well-read man in America. You know, he reads everything. Um, but he loves Michael Connelly and he's been wrong about some stuff. Um, uh, there's a, uh, it's like, uh, there's a book called, I can't remember. It's like, Oh, it's Andrew Clavin werewolf cop. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I love the title so much. And, uh, John Wilson liked it that I was going to read it, you know? And I, it was terrible. It was so bad. Um, the first few oh, chapters no. were, were, they were horrible. I thought, sorry to Andrew Cal- Clavin and John Wilson, <laughs> especially John Wilson. I don't care about Andrew Clavin, but, um, but uh anyway but he he really like he's really convinced me that i'm gonna have to read michael Connolly at some point he thinks michael Connolly is great you know and i would have never kind of gone that route but now that i've read all of pd james i don't know what to believe bill you know yeah i mean there's always the danger that you're gonna actually end up liking something and i I more or less like non basilisk station i may read more honor harrington at some point but i don't have like a desperate urge to do it but I, on the subject of publishing though like i've learned that i really distrust any sci-fi fantasy book where the cover is like a dark purple yeah. you know what i mean there's like a particular and i, I do misborn misborn is actually pretty fun and it's got that like i'm always the other thing i made this joke on twitter but there's a thing for like sort of popular i don't know if lit fix exactly right but sort of realistic fiction where it has a novel written in cursive on it somewhere yeah and i'm just obsessed with the idea of like a trash fantasy novel with a title like <laughs> a Crimson yes. Dagger, book three of the Arvarang saga, and then has a novel in a pastel novel. cursive on the bottom. I, I'm gonna, if I ever make it as a writer, I'm gonna make my publisher do it someday. Oh, please just, like, do. Just to really confuse anybody who picks it up, you know? The rest of the cover has, like, swords, and then right. the a novel says that it's a book about being on a beach in Florence. You know what I mean? Like, I'm gonna do it. Conan the Barbarian. Does Florence have a beach? A I don't novel. even know if Florence has a beach, but you know what I mean. Italy They're somewhere. close enough, I think. I don't know anything about Italy. <laughs> Italy is a made-up place. It doesn't exist. Why did we bring up Italy? Yeah. <laughs> That's not going to go well for either of us. Um, okay, last question for Bill. This is I'm setting you up for hopefully a, 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 semi, a semi-long Bill moment, so prepare yourself. Uh-oh. Um, your other project, which you, you did name-check earlier, besides Connie Willis, was uh, Victor Laval. And I, I, was, yeah. I was hoping you would tell us more about the Victor Laval experience. Yeah, so Victor Laval is a very contemporary author. He's very much still writing. Uh, his probably his most famous book was 2016, The Ballad of Black Tom, which I think we've talked on this podcast before. I think you read we, it last year. We maybe. both liked it. Yeah, we both liked it. Yeah, no, I like it a lot. And that's the only book of his I had read. And he doesn't have nearly as many books as Connie Willis, but I thought, you know, I like this a lot. Let's see what else he's got. So I picked up every Victor Laval book. I read all the books. I have not read his graphic novel, Destroyer, which is a retelling of Frankenstein. I don't know. That's what I know about it. I haven't read it. Um... But his novel, well, it's a bunch of novels in a short story collection. So the short story collection is called Slap Boxing with, Genius, G, G, Slap Boxing with Jesus, 
and it is a collection of short stories. It is very much lit fic, uh, primarily about uh, experiences of young black men in uh, Queens in particular, not just New York, in like the 80s and 90s, which is when Victor Laval was growing up. He's about 40-something. Um, and he was a young black man in Queens. And in fact, a lot of his stories are very clearly at least rooted in his own experiences. His mother was Ugandan. He, I don't know if he personally had dealt with mental illness or somebody in his family had or what. He's a little cagey about it, but he had, he talks about having personal experience with New York psychiatric hospitals. Uh, and a lot of his books are about those sort of being young, black, and mentally ill in Queens. Sometimes there are monsters, sometimes there aren't, right? His second book is called The Ecstatic, and it is a, also a lit fic book about uh, actually a character from Slapboxing with Jesus, who is uh, sometimes, I think, Victor Laval's stand-in character, sort of Nathan Zuckerman style. Uh, sometimes not. For one thing, Anthony is very obese, and Victor Laval does not appear to be anymore, at least. Uh, in his pictures, he's very rail thin. Um, the Ecstatic is about this guy's life for a while. He's, he's schizophrenic. He's a big nerd. He reads a lot of horror fiction. And he kind of gets tangled up in some family stuff, and it, it works pretty well, but we'll talk more about that in a minute. Then Big Machine, which I don't even know how to describe. It's a very strange quasi-horror, quasi-adventure story about a guy who gets tangled up in some kind of conflict between sort of two supernatural powers, and one of them deploys... Or one, I don't know, it's a really weird book, and I don't fully understand it, but one of them deploys something called a library, which, like, hires down-and-out African-American people to, like, research things and then occasionally go out and explore them, like supernatural things. It's an odd book. The Devil mm. in Silver, which is uh, about a guy, it's actually a white guy, sort of a meathead guy who gets tangled up in a high hospital, a mental hospital in New York, uh, and there's maybe a monster in the hospital and him <laughs> dealing with his friends. Uh, before that, I'm sorry, there's a novella called Lucretia and the Croons, which actually ends up being... The main character actually ends up being a character in, in uh, The Devil and Silver. Actually, as does Anthony at the very end, very briefly. <clears throat> uh, Lucretia and the Croons is about a young girl whose friend is dying of cancer, and she has some kind of, like, psychotic break about it and goes on, like, an Alice in Wonderland adventure through a horrifying upside-down New York, which has a lot of, like, zombie people chasing her around in. Uh, after The Devil and Silver, he wrote The Ballad of Black Tom, which we've talked about already on the podcast. Not this one, but on the podcast previously, which is a reimagining and retelling of Lovecraft's worst short story, only about he recenters it on a character actually isn't in the short story, but who was sort of implied uh, a young African-American man in Harlem in the 20s who gets tangled up in a Cthulhu cult, basically. Um, and it's about police violence, and it's really good. And then he wrote The Changeling, which came out a couple years ago, and is probably his best full-length work, uh, which is about a couple who have a child who maybe turns out to be a changeling in the fairy sense, and the adventures the father has in trying to figure out exactly what happened and why his wife murdered their baby. Um, it's a brutal story. So I don't know as I actually have all that much interesting to say about Victor Laval as a whole. I enjoyed the work, or at least generally. I, I wasn't as blown away by it as I was kind of hoping to be, but, you know, he's, he's a good writer, and I'm excited to see what he keeps doing. But there's something he does in The Devil in Silver that kind of set me off on a whole train of thought that isn't even really about Victor Laval, but but it kind of annoyed me, so I want to talk about that for a while. He also does it a little bit in Lucretia and the Croons, which uh, I think Lucretia and the Croons is actually just pretty bad. Um, the Devil in Silver has moments of absolute genius, and then I think it really whiffs it. I'm going to spoil the heck out of everything Victor Laval ever wrote and a bunch of other stuff right now. So if you're really wanting to go read Victor Laval, uh, come back later. I'll, I'll put a timestamp in the <laughs> podcast description. Um the Devil in Silver is about, about a guy named Pepper. He's like a 40-something-year-old white guy who, like, moves furniture, who gets 
sort of involuntarily committed to a, hosp- a mental hospital because he pisses off the cops. He doesn't belong there. He's not crazy, or at least not any crazier than the rest of us are. Uh, and while he's there, he meets a lot of other people, including Lucretia, who's a few years older, or Lucci, as they call her. And uh, the mental hospital treats everyone terribly. It's kind of a one flew over the cuckoo's nest thing, which I also listened to this year, which may, in fairness, be why I didn't like this book as much, because one flew over the cuckoo's nest is really good, particularly when you listen to an audiobook read by John C. Riley. Uh, it does help, but it's, it is really it's good. It's really good, yeah. But anyway, um, I actually had to stop. I was reading them both at the same time, and I actually had to stop, which was the second time that happened with Victor Laval. I was reading Big Machine and the thing itself at the same time, and there are some weird connections. Anyway, so they're at the mental hospital. The staff's treating them terribly, and there's this big silver door, and there's a big monster that is living in the building. It looks like a some sort of horrible buffalo-headed minotaur thing on spindly legs that crashes through the ceiling and stamps on your rib cage, and it's really good. Uh, until. So obviously the big monster of the story is the mental asylum or the mental hospital. Fine. Very good. Agreed. Right. But at the end of the story, it becomes pretty clear that the big monster is actually just a guy like an old man whose hair has grown really wild and beard has grown really wild. And he's been very badly neglected by the staff and like locked in a room with nothing in it. And so he breaks out and commits violence on the other prisoner prisoners. I mean, they are, they're not technically prisoners, but you know what I mean? Uh, you know, commits violence on the other inmates and that's not the right word either, but I'm going to go with it. Uh, and um, one of the, you know, the, 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 a lot of the other people kind of band together to try to kill him. And then they're prevented from doing so. And our guys leave. And I find this really annoying because I think one, it's a problem with these two books of Victor Laval in particular. I think it's a problem with a lot of sort of highfalutin genre fiction in general, in that it's very scared of just committing to the supernatural element, right? It's very oh, yeah. scared of committing to actually having a monster there. And I get why it happened here, because the point is that he's not the monster. The system is the monster, which is a very good point. You know, I'm on board with that. But I actually think that by flinching at the end, he undercuts the whole point of his metaphor, right? He undercuts the entire project he's been in. And this annoys me for several reasons. One, I will admit that I'm a simple man. I like it when there's a monster. That's not a fair criticism. That's just what Bill <laughs> likes. So I, mean, I guess read everything else I'm going to say through that, right? But I was thinking about it, and there's popular response to a couple different movies and books that I've always found very annoying because they're always trying to read it in such a way that there isn't a supernatural thing happening. And I want to talk about that for a minute and see if it makes any sense. I read a review. So I, people have said this about uh, Guillermo del Toro's fantastic film Pan's Labyrinth. Oh, for years, yeah. Right? Yep. Um, and I, I, I just found a random blogger. I'm not going to identify him because he's just some dude. Uh, but just kind of make myself clear that I wasn't hallucinating that people have this opinion, right? Pan's Labyrinth, if you haven't seen it, stop listening to the podcast and go watch Pan's Labyrinth. But it's set in the Spanish Civil War. There's a little girl. Her mother marries like a, I can't think of the right word, but like a captain in the fascist army. Uh, and she goes on a series of fantastical adventures intercut with the scenes of absolute horror of the Spanish Civil War. Ultimately, she ends up sort of dying, but maybe but maybe also ascending to be sort of a princess in the fairy realm, right? And if you read the movie straight, she is actually going under all these adventures. She's meeting horrible monsters and transcending, like, beating them. And when she dies, yes, it is sort of a beautiful moment, even as she dies on this earth, right? But a lot of people, because the movie is so beautifully made, and the movie is so completely unflinching in the horrors of fascism, and it's a brutal movie if you haven't seen it. It's, it's very hard to watch. Um, a lot of people want to read Pan's Labyrinth as none of that actually happened, right? She's having sort of a fantasy to try to cope with the horrors she's dealing with, and that's sad, right? Yeah. And one, I think you have to get pretty far away from the text to actually do that. 
Uh, and Guillermo del Toro agrees with me, by the way. Uh, <laughs> and I know the author is dead, but that makes me feel that I'm not crazy. Uh, he says he did leave several hits throughout the movie that are about that is actually happening. Most importantly is she has some magic chalk she can use to kind of open say, doors yeah. and walls. And there's a scene that doesn't make any sense if she doesn't have the magic chalk. Because yep. she gets somewhere she can't otherwise get, you know, is like a locked door. And she gets through it by drawing a chalk board on the side or draw, drawing a chalk door on the side and getting in. And she does come out with, I think it's her brother, right? Like the baby? I think that's right. Yeah. But, you know, she accomplishes something in the room. And I don't know how the heck she gets in there without the magic chalk. And you can, I guess, fridge logic your way out of it by saying, oh, she did something else and this is how she made sense of it. And I guess. But I think you have to ignore the text to do that, right? And But people really want get committed to this. Like this random blogger I found likes the movie less after he reads the Guillermo del Toro interview because he thinks like, what does it mean? Does it mean like a child's whimsy can beat fascism? Because that's silly. I thought this was for adults. Um, <laughs> I think I'm not going to pick on this guy because he's just some dude. But uh, And so that. And then two other things I want to briefly talk about. But... Uh, beloved by Toni Morrison. I think we've talked about this before. It's a ghost story. A lot of people don't want it to be a ghost story. A lot of people want it to be about something else and all the ghosts to be just a metaphor or just about sort of the way these people are coping with the sort of horrible experience they've been in. I don't think the text makes any sense if there isn't a real No, they're text. wrong. Yeah, that, that one, they're just plain and wrong. Yeah. I've only read the book once and I didn't study it, so maybe I'm missing something, but there's a lot of scenes that I don't understand what's happening if there isn't a ghost. But a lot of people, because Beloved is an incredible work of literary fiction, which it is, a lot of people want to read the ghost out. Third and finally, to sort of make my point, rule of threes, is The Witch by Robert Eggers, the movie with Anya Taylor-Joy. There's a couple shots of, like, the grain spoiling, and apparently there are certain kinds of crop blight that were common in the time frame, 17th century New England, which causes you to have to trip balls, is this right? <laughs> to have serious hallucinations. <laughs> yeah, the, to, to use to, the technical term, I would say, yeah, the trip balls. And to additionally have, like, sort of psychotic reactions to things, right? And so a lot of people try to read all of the stuff that happens in The Witch as basically drug-induced psychosis. And I think, again, you have to get away from the text for that. There's a lot of stuff that happens in the movie that I don't know what it means if they're all hallucinations. Uh, and also, I think this whole project, now that I've described it, is fundamentally flawed for a couple of different reasons. One, because it's just a fear of being perceived as juvenile for liking something good that is genre, which is dumb, and that's about what I have to say about that. Yeah, <laughs> sounds good to me. Uh, just enjoy your sci-fi and horror, and you don't. It's not a lesser form of art; it's a different form of art. And there's some. If there's anything this year did with Connie Willis and Gene Wolfe and Ursula K. Le Guin in my reading, it reminded me that some of the greatest prose I've ever read is in sci-fi. But uh, so I guess get over yourself. And again, is that partly me reacting because people are calling me juvenile for liking sci-fi? Probably. Nevertheless, I think that's dumb. But the broader point is that all of these stories function at some level as metaphors for other things, right? Um, you know, Beloved is about a ghost, but it's also about the way the ghosts of slavery in a metaphorical sense haunt the people who used to be slaves and, you know, make it hard for them to live lives that are unhaunted by these things, right? And right. The sort of terrible choices you have to make when you're... Uh, an enslaved person and getting out of it will impact you for the rest of your life. That's absolutely part of what the metaphor of it is, right? But by trying to cut away the uh, the reality of the underlying supernatural elements, right? These critics and these people are, I think, hamstringing the metaphor, right? We understand that there are not ghosts, right? I'm aware of that, right? <laughs> In the real world, I mean, right? I don't know, Bill. but 
Well, I don't know, but like, <laughs> certainly not an everyday experience. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Like, there's not, you know, I don't believe there are witches in the woods, right? I don't, I don't really think that there are fairy lands where you can meet Now we're on thin ice, Bill. I don't know, man. I know, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I'm, sorry but, I'm just joking. Thank you. But, you know, the point of these stories, beyond just telling a good story, which is an important point for the record, is also to be, to function as metaphors for other things, right? When you understand yes. the metaphors in these stories, you have a better understanding of the actual things. And you don't need to, and, and I think by making them unreal in the context of the story, you damage your metaphor, right? To talk about another movie, The Babadook um, is about grief, right? Yeah. It's about, you can read it in a super didactic way. It's about how grief comes into your life, changes who you are as a person, makes you worse, and you have to learn to live with it, right? That is true. That is what the movie is about, right? But it's also about a real monster. And if you get rid of it, then it becomes not a story about how grief comes in and changes your life. It becomes a story about how grief drives you crazy, which is a different story. Right? Yes. Or Beloved yep. becomes a story not about being haunted by ghosts. It becomes about how having been a slave drives you mad. Right? It becomes about hallucinating. The Witch is not a story about how when faced with something you don't understand, the family bites itself to death. It becomes a story about how it's really good that we have better crop practices. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like it becomes, <laughs> and it becomes it, it damages the metaphor. And instead of being about whatever it's actually about, the story becomes about madness, and it becomes about hallucinations. Right? And I'm not saying you can't tell a story about that. And I'm not right. saying you can't tell a story where the supernatural elements turn out to be hallucinations. But that is actually a different project. Right? The witch becomes about, like I said, it becomes about people being driven crazy and like, well, they did all these things because they were tripping, right? Because that's why they did all these things. And that's not what the movie's about. These are rational people who, when faced yes. with a horrifying threat, yes. turn on each other. That's what the movie is about. And all the stuff about the oppression of women that the movie is definitely is about makes a lot more sense if you take the witch as literal, right? Because Anya Taylor-Joy's character is not the witch at the beginning of the movie, but her family's horrible reaction to the witch is what makes her be the witch, Right. And if that's just because they're going crazy, that doesn't make any sense. Or at least it doesn't make as much sense. Similarly, again, if the Babadook wasn't a real monster, it, it, it becomes about how this woman went nuts, right? Rather than about how grief works. And this is, I think, a recurring problem in that in an attempt to make something more adult, they actually end up cutting out their own metaphor and making the work less meaningful. And I think this is where Victor Laval gets in trouble in those two books. I'm now back to books. The Devil in Silver is about how, you know the horrifying failures of our mental health system turn people against each other and sort of allow people to other the mentally ill people, right? And allow them to sort of turn them into monsters. But because it's not actually a real monster, I think the metaphor is worse, right? Because yeah. now, yeah. rather than being about a bunch of mentally ill people banding together to deal with an actual monster and then discovering that the real monster is the system, which is what the story is about, it becomes about how a bunch of mentally ill people tried really hard to murder another mentally ill person because they were crazy. <laughs> Jeez. And that is a much worse story. Because if he's actually a monster, if he is some sort of buffalo-headed minotaur, in addition right. to being a more satisfying horror story, which does matter, for the record, is actually an important thing to do, is to tell a good story with your story. Art not being just a series of, like, theses about how to live in life. Amen. Um, if, well, the story's a lot better, if it is actually a minotaur monster, some sort of and he's kind of hints at, like, some sort of leftover thing from the treaty, treatment of Native Americans that has manifested into this horrifying buffalo minotaur then the realization that he's still not the bad guy is so much better right oh yeah that the no, monster great, is yeah. still like that the mental health system took this thing it didn't understand and mistreated it is a lot better if he's actually a buffalo minotaur like well, most stories would be improved by the addition of a buffalo minotaur let's be clear about <laughs> <that>. <laughs> you know jane Eyre, good story yeah, with yeah. a buffalo minotaur great story <laughs> 
Um, What's locked in the attic, you know? <laughs> but like, yeah, I'm just saying, what if the mad woman in the attic was a buffalo? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm losing the plot a little bit here. But part of the point, also the devil and silver, is you have these people who are mentally ill and who are kind of dangerous to each other, right? He talks a couple times about people having crazy strength, and he's writing in a very colloquial sense. It's not insulting, right? Right. And, like, this guy is dangerous, right? And he gets kind of dehumanized by making him human, because then he really does just become some crazy lunatic, you know what I mean? Oh, totally. Rather than actually a monster. Yeah. If you made him a monster, I think you're making more interesting points. And also, it makes the point, which is this system and the travails of mental health do legitimately make people dangerous and scary right like a lot of this fiction which is about um mental health systems or the criminal justice system is trying to do a very important thing in humanizing the people we're dealing with the the mental health patients the criminals right and it's trying to remind all the different ways how they got there right you know they 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 led poisoning and being mistreated by their family and mental health issues right and i think they sometimes forget that the scary thing is that these folks can still be scary right Like, I'm a public defender. I deal with a lot of clients who have serious mental health issues. There have been moments when I have been legitimately afraid for my safety. Thankfully, nothing has happened. And the the scary thing, the hard thing, is to recognize that and still treat them like people. Right? To acknowledge that this person who is a, you know, has committed acts of horrible violence, right, is actually dangerous and is still a human being worthy of dignity and respect and love. That's the hard thing. And that's the sort of thing that this fiction needs needs to deal with. Right? But instead, we get a lot of really weak stories that aren't about that. And I do think that the, the lack of commitment to the supernatural in this story is all kind of tangled up in this. Does that make sense? No, I I love everything you've said. I, I co-sign it as strongly as possible. <laughs> and so this is where somebody's going to soundbite that and I'm going to say the mentally ill are dangerous. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that uh, I think that by not committing to his metaphor in this book and the previous book, I think he really cuts his feet off. And I think that the lack of balance he has is the recurring problem in Victor Laval's works, and it's why he's so frustrating, because he is a really talented writer doing some really cool stuff, making some social-political points I, I totally endorse, and I think that he... His, his, his earlier works are worse because he doesn't commit to them. And then, in Black, uh, Black Tom and The Changeling, he fixes it. Black Tom would be a lot worse if it was a story about a guy who is crazy and thinks he's talking to Cthulhu. Instead, it's actually about a guy who does summon Cthulhu, and it's about how right. repressive systems can force you into a position of such utter nihilism that you're willing to do that. And that's a really good story. So there. That is my, like, 20-minute rant on Victor Laval and why there should be ghosts in stories and about how <laughs> mental health fiction is often bad. Um, trying to think what else I can do here. Uh, I can make another really strong, hot take. I will say again, the purpose of poetry is to create titles for science. Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. You know what, Bill? I take it back. I don't co-sign anymore. <laughs> co-sign revoked. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I was just going to say... Um, I, you know, I'm not, I don't think I'm smart enough to actually, you know, get into words what I, what I was thinking about the whole time you were, you were talking, which mostly was just like, you've perfectly captured the ways in which oftentimes the authors of these, of these works, like I think Robert Eggers, I think he actually is one of the people who gestures the idea of like, well, maybe the witch isn't about witchcraft. It's about, you know, um, yeah, I think he has said that, you know, he has, and I, but, and he is wrong and, and well, he's wrong partly because of everything you've just said. Um, I, actually, yeah, I don't have anything to add to what you said, but I was just going to try and articulate why I, I think you're, you're so correct about, um, the need for sometimes literalizing these supernatural elements. One is that there is something pleasurable about, you know, meeting an actual ghost in fiction, 
that's okay to indulge, I think. But two, like all of literature or movies or whatever, but literature especially because it's not visual, they're all happening along a symbolic plane, right? Everything's already symbolism, right? The characters, no matter how realistic you're trying to be, are already always standing in for something. And I think you're right. I think as soon as, as soon as you take the cheap out that this symbol of a monster or a ghost is actually always about you know, how real, <laughs> how real is the book you're reading? Do you know what I mean? That's kind of what it's also saying. It's not just about like, you know, it's not just undercutting the metaphor. It's kind of undercutting the whole project of like, hey, we all know we're reading fiction right now, you know? But the whole job of fiction is to try to put into narrative and words, you know, the the emotional reality of being alive, I think. And I do think a lot of times it's hard to talk about the impact of tragedy without literalizing it in fiction because you're dealing on a symbolic plane. You know, a lot of authors who deal in strict realism, like Jane Austen, they can do it. You know, they're, she's great at getting across what it feels like to find your world ridiculous without there ever actually being a gothic explanation, you know? But I do think there's something impactful about Toni Morrison dealing with a literal ghost because she's operating in a symbolic plane where some, you know, the ghost um, gives a visceral impact to these made-up people, <laughs> you know, that I think rebounds onto the reader as far as like the emotional, um, you know, uh, energy of it is is definitely a lot a lot stronger. Um, but yeah, there's a way in which also people are just being trying to, like they're trying to be like, you know, annoyingly postmodern or cheap, right? Like, well, everything's made up in a book, you know. It's like. Yeah, 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 I know. <laughs> you know <laughs> I, I know it's a book. You don't have to keep reminding me this is a book. Like, I'm aware of the book. I have it in my hands, you know? <laughs> um, yeah. I love that. I love that. It was a great sermon. Um, I, I, I genuinely thought that was great. Hopefully. We'll see. And by the way, Victor, on the off chance you're listening to this, which you're not, you're a much better writer than I am. Please, please don't be mean to me. Um, um, I wanted to ask you about a couple things. We're going long, and I, just, I read 104 books. I don't know if I've mentioned that, that I read 104 Wait, books this year. Wait, 104 but... books, Bill? Yeah, so we're going we're gonna to go long today, and I don't care. All right, let's doing. do it. Um, I'm going to cut all that Victor LaValle stuff. No, I'm not. No. Um, uh, you read A Life of John Donne. I don't know anything about the specific book you read, but I'm interested in John Donne. He had kind of a weird life from what little I know about it. Tell me about that. Yeah, so... Uh... I, he, it was written by a contemporary. I just sprung that on you. I'm really sorry. No, no okay. warning at all. Didn't write in the notes. I was going to ask you about that. Uh, but uh, tell me about John Donne or about specifically Isaac Walton's version of John Donne. So I, what I, the only thing I wanted to look up was, so Isaac Walton was a contemporary of John Donne. He knew him. Um, oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. So he, he writes one of the first biographies of John Donne. And, um, you know, his, he's attempting to shape the legacy of John Donne before the poetry is um, even published, actually. So John Donne, was famous in his, John Donne was famous in his lifetime for being sort of an English Augustan, although that framing does mostly come from Isaac Walton, that he was this kind of like famous, love-ridden, you know, <laughs> ne'er-do-well. <laughs> you know, he's just, you know, mixing up with all kinds of daughters and uh, whatever. And... Um, and then he, you know, partly, you know, he, he does marry for love and has this great passion and kind of ruins his standing in court and all of this, 
all this really scandalous stuff happens. And then he, you know, he goes into the church and he becomes the great voice of the English church. His sermons are famous at the time he's alive. And they're what kind of creates his initial literary reputation. Um, and so Isaac Walton was, yeah, he took, undertook kind of the project to, to really make sure he solidified John Donne's um, legacy. Again, before, before the poetry that everyone kind of now knows him for was even out in the world. Um, but also, I, I want, the, only, the only thing I want to look up is that Isaac Walton is actually more famous for having written a book called The Complete Angler on the Pleasures of Fishing. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it's like a book that a lot of folks really love. I've never been able to read it. I, I, I don't know. Fishing's boring. How good can a book on fishing be? Um, which I apologize to my grandfather, <laughs> you know, <laughs> my uncles and cousins. And oh. um, Anyway, yeah, so I loved it, though. I found it, you know, Isaac Walton's not the best writer, and he, he kind of keeps apologizing for that in that classic, like, you know, like 16th century annoying way, you know, like whatever. Yeah. My words are not equal to this task, but <laughs> yes, let me tell you. Yeah, yes. I, 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 but I'm still going to write this book, you know, just write the book, Isaac. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but there's really beautiful stuff. One of the things that I took away most, and I'm, you know, I've, I've got kids. Um, and so I always, the family, any family drama angle for anything always kind of captures my attention in a, in a new way. But um, there's always this, I feel like, debate around death in earlier centuries where people talk about how it didn't used to matter as much, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and even there's a great article I read a few months ago about, you know, how a child dying now is like the worst thing that could happen. But as recently as like a hundred years ago, basically everyone who had more than two kids probably had an infant who died in their family, you know, maybe 150 yeah. years ago. And so... John Dunn loses a bunch of kids and it talks about the heartbreak of that. And it talks about him being gone one time when one of their kids is dying and his wife is possibly dying. And there's like some supernatural stuff. Like he experiences some visions and things that I, I just found interesting as like, you know, a Christian or whatever. But, um, but I also, I found actually what you were just talking about, like the spiritual element, which this is a biography, not fiction, but it really does bring home the intensity of the emotions around death, you know, because they talk about it in these kind of coded Christian phrases, but it, it was so heartbreaking to him and his wife to lose one baby and then another baby, you know, it, it really yeah. destroyed them. Um, and the book talks about that. And of course this guy's a contemporary, he's not someone looking backwards. And so I don't know, that was me going long on John Dunn, sorry, <laughs> but I, I did, I found it to be a, a, a great, you know, point of evidence at the very least in this really stupid idea that like humans didn't used to be humans you know there's a real you know i don't know it's so it's so it's so pervasive and so pernicious this idea that like in the third century no one cared if infants died you know it's like no no it was sad you know it was still sad um they well, different... it's one of those things that's annoying because like five seconds of reading any primary text will show you that yeah that's yeah right? like you know <laughs> Poor peasants, you know, who are arguably are the people who are supposed to be least impacted by this, bury their children with whatever they've got. To right. Treasure, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's ridiculous. No. <laughs> but I, so, yeah, it was a book I read totally randomly. I, I have I, I was hoping to do like a bit of a John Dunn run through this year. I, I've never read his sermons, not a lot of them, at least. And I have a contemporary biography I want to read. But then I, I got totally, you know, P.D. James came along and <laughs> what's, you know, what's John Dunn to P.D. James? <laughs> I'm, I'm committing you to that. P.D. James more important than John Donne. So uh, yeah, you know, poetry. Yeah. It's just for science fiction titles. What can I say? <laughs> <laughs>
I'm just saying. Is Batter My Heart Three Person God a good poem? Yes. Is it also a great title for a science fiction short story? Damn. <laughs> yes, it is, Bill. Fine. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> it's my favorite hot take because I don't actually believe it, but I kind of believe it. <laughs> it's not the worst hot take, to be honest. <laughs> I didn't notice you read this. Uh, you read a symposia on Red Plenty, this buffered book? I did, yeah. Um, do you know the blog Crooked Timber? I don't. Oh, I didn't. I didn't either. <laughs> um, there's some people, Henry Farrell maybe, there's some people that like are on Twitter now and stuff who you may have recognized like, if you went back and read their, their Crooked Timber blog stuff. Um, but they did this, um, they invited a bunch of people, including Kim Stanley Robinson, to like basically mm. write an essay you know, on um, Red Plenty. And then they actually had Francis Spufford come in and do like the EndNote essay. And so I, there's a bunch of essays there, and they're like some of them are very good, some of them are just kind of mediocre. There's one guy who um, is an economist, a mathematician of some kind, and he takes all of the numbers in Francis Spufford's book about the communists trying to create enough, you know, you know, <laughs> food and money and stuff <laughs> to kind of last. But like he does, he basically crunches all of the numbers in Francis Bufford's book to figure out what kind of supercomputer would have been necessary to actually realize the dream. <laughs> and he, oh, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's really cool. It's really like a, it's a very technical essay, but it was the kind of essay that like you can only find on a blog from the you know 2010s or whatever. So yeah, so it was it was a really awesome. It was a really great kind of symposia of different types of thinkers. The one annoying thing, and Kim Stanley Robinson immediately cuts us off, is they kept talking about, like, is this a novel or is it not a novel? (laughs) And Kim Stanley Robinson was like, this is clearly a novel. Don't talk to me again on this subject, you know? <laughs> I'll not hear another word on it. Um, And actually, uh, and and Francis Spufford had the – honestly – his essay was the best, probably. <laughs> but he, he, he thanked a bunch of people and talked about various reactions to the novel, including the biggest one was that a lot of people kind of accused him of, you know, because he's so critical of the Soviet mission. And he even has a part at the end of the book where he kind of, it's very implicit, but he, he basically references the Ukraine um, mass starvation in the 30s. And um, so, you know, he he's of leftist tendencies is whatever that means these days. But, um, and so he was accused by other kind of, you know, socialist minded people of, of, of going really hard on all of these, you know, failures of the Soviet union. And he's like, well, and, and they're like, well, you know what? A lot of these criticisms could be made about capitalism. You know? <laughs> and Francis Spufford's reaction is like, I agree. It's sort of like saying, it's sort of, you know, it's sort of like saying a lot of major cities, happened to be by major rivers you know like this was planned (laughs) the criticism (laughs) the criticism was meant to kind of rebound on those of us who are obsessed with plenty from a a market-oriented standpoint um i may have read that essay it might be collected in his uh oh it actually i think that sounds super familiar. actually it might be yeah i think it might be but it's really good it's really good essay and the symposium was really great honestly it was for me it was a reminder of like kind of the the high watermark of what blogs could be you know a bunch of different thinkers who aren't quite famous enough to do a real book who kind of give you a fan of a niche work that you want to read more about they gave you like they gave me exactly what i wanted which was like more people talking about this at a, a really high level of interest you know yeah, that's really cool. Well, that makes an obvious transition to a question. Do we want to talk about Light Perpetual? I didn't finish it, Bill. <laughs> you didn't finish it. 
Oh no! I, know. I guess you're right. I didn't. No, it's it okay. I, I know. Yeah, yeah. I was so I was actually really. Francis, shut your ears. Don't listen. <laughs> I'm gonna read. I'm gonna finish it. I we, we were gonna do a podcast on it maybe, and I was like a third of the way through, yeah. and then we're like we were like we're not gonna do a podcast, and it just went by the wayside. I want to finish it. I uh, I think Phil Chrisman liked it a lot. You were a little more on the fence, I think, but um, yeah. I mean, I won't talk about it too much since you haven't finished it. I think it's a good book. I don't. I also think that its general conceit is right. I don't know if it's necessary. And I, I think I said this in my book blog on the subject. It was like Zadie Smith wrote a whole book about people in London and didn't need to kill them all in the first chapter first. You know what I mean? Like you can just do that. Um, it's a good book. I, you know, I, I don't. But I, I think it's it's sort of more interesting, like philosophical project than a novel. In terms of the conceit, like the actual like scene to scene stuff, I think works really, really well. There's actually a really great portrayal of schizophrenia in that book, which I can't speak to how accurate it is, but I thought really was really moving, right? The way like intrusive thoughts work. Um, but it was, uh, I don't know, I came to it way like, I enjoyed this book. I don't know if the framing narrative added anything to it, and it just made me feel like I was missing something. But I won't talk more about it, because you should read it first. Uh, yeah, no, I'll finish it. I will. I actually... I, I mostly didn't want to admit that I mostly didn't want to meet, admit that to you because you're the great like if I start a book <laughs> I'm gonna finish it and I I've gotten worse and worse with like I am gonna like I actually started reading um Oxford World Classic uh, has a great coll- collection compendium of Samuel Johnson works and I started to read that I read like a third or a half of that and didn't finish that either so you know well. For the record, your way is a healthier way to live. My way is ridiculous and means I read through a bunch of, like, dumb conservative stuff my dad gave me. Like, I've got to read so much Thomas Sowell if I'm going to Oh, fin- yeah. I, he's not, like, he's worth reading, but, like, I don't know if he's that worth I don't reading. know how it's going to happen, Bill. <sighs> I'm so sorry for exposing you as a fake stuff. Spuff I know, you're, Spuff. You're no, the, don't, Francis. You, you're out of the, I like, gave you rate. unapologetic. Uh, how dare you? <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, which I read this year again, which I don't need to talk more about unapologetic. It's a wonderful it's so book, good. but I read it after reading the God delusion, which I don't actually have much to say about because the God delusion is a dumb yeah. book. Um, it's, and part of it is because I've been hearing those arguments for a long time, but I had never actually read the text. And so I did. And Dawkins, he's a very smart guy, but he's also a really dumb guy. And everyone who's followed him on Twitter for the last 10 years knows that. Um, and I'm not saying that like Dawkins is silly because like, it's so obvious there's a guy, like it's not my position, right, right. Or whatever my position is Spufford's, which is hell. I don't know. Right. But, uh, but the, like so many of Dawkins criticisms are just category error. Yeah, I know. <laughs> not, not like Christmas of organized religion or, or you know, or one thing, but like he has this whole argument about how God can't exist. Cause that's not how evolution works. And I'm just like, what are you doing? No, Richard? it's like, <laughs> none of us said that's how this works. <laughs> Nobody has ever said yeah. that there's like a materialist explanation for God. Right. That's not a thing anyone has ever said. I mean, I'm sure someone has, but anyway, um, so it's just refreshing to read Dawkins miss the point for 300 pages and then read Francis Bufford's book where he says, I don't care about any of that. <laughs> correctly. I know. Correctly just, identifies yeah, how correctly, inessential yeah. it is. Um, so, you know, Spufford is still, I, I, I finished Light Perpetual and I was a little disappointed, but I, uh, he still has a blank check for me to write about literally anything. Uh, I same. Be the first person to read it. So. No, that's, that's definitely how I feel uh, about Spufford. And I, I, I feel that way. Actually, it's funny. I, I said it in our Doomsday podcast and actually, I was met with, like, silence by you and Christy. I was worried that I'd, like, a, you know, <laughs> it was, like, a faux pas. <laughs> but I said, like, I, I kind of love Connie Willis because she's one of my favorite authors. Her books have probably had a, a you know, a, a more definitive emotional impact on me than a lot of other books or authors have, will ever have. But 
when she's when she's bad, she's you know she's not ever terrible, but like she misses. You know, she really does for oh, me yeah. miss oh, the absolutely. mark. And I I kind of but like as a writer, I love that. You know what I mean? Because like here's someone who, when they're on, is someone I could imitate almost. You know, I I, I want to you know steal from them if I can, and it's really reassuring, but also just kind of delightful to see how close a uh, a hit and a miss can be you know all the ways that she misses in some of her books it's the same stuff you know the plot is kind of spinning yeah. in a status quo that seems to be active but isn't you know only it's, it's just not working for some reason um and the same is true of you know francis pepper has written such different things he doesn't have the same problem but also the intelligence behind what's at work it, it's just it's you know i don't care i, I want to be in contact with it you know the way he thinks about the world is worth kind of reading even when it's a, a miss which again i I haven't finished this book, but we'll see. Yeah. Well, you know, maybe you can come out as pro life perpetual and we can have a real blogging yeah. <laughs> fight, you know, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm very much a Raylo and you're very much, a, I don't even know what the other ship is called, I don't but know. yeah. Fandom. Ship yeah. Course, yeah. That's a thing I don't miss. I did what I was, I should confess now when I was 12, I wrote an angry email 1210, I think, wrote an angry email to a guy who wrote a Final Fantasy VII fanfic that I thought didn't correctly portray Eris. Uh, I was really mad about that. Well, think about that let's talk about how our childhoods were so similar but so different. When I was 10, I believe, I wrote an angry letter to Adventures in Odyssey. <laughs> <laughs> and they, they actually got back yeah. to me. Actually, the writer on this did, I guess it was a, you know, a tiny fan fanfic right. writer. And he was like, no, a lot of people have made that criticism, but you know, I it doesn't matter. Uh, <laughs> you know, Final Fantasy VII fanfic is not a thing that uh, occupies you, a significant portion of my did life. Did you tell now, him you were 10? Of course not. Okay, no, no I was just, I just, I didn't know. I didn't either. I mean, he must have been probably 16. Right. It's not like oh, okay, true, true, true. But, I mean, I don't know, but, um, man, I was really into Final Fantasy VII fanfiction there for about five minutes, um, which is why I haven't played the remake very much. I played it at a friend's house for a bit. You don't care. No, about I, I've, I, no, we've actually, um, on the Discord, but, we've kind of, I've, we've talked about it a little bit. But, uh, uh, Final Fantasy VII is like a weird text. I'm not sure it's very good. I replayed it a couple years ago, but it's like in my soul somewhere yeah. next to like Hitchhiker's Guide to the yeah. Galaxy. And uh, so it just kind of, I'm going to play the remake and I'm going to cry the whole time, um, even though it does some weird things in the end is my understanding. But anyway, this is not a podcast about Final Fantasy, <laughs> not, which is probably Not good. yet. <laughs> Give us time. Not yet. <laughs> All right. Uh, I don't know. So I feel like we should be winding down, but I've got like 12 more books I want to talk about. Uh, do I was going to maybe do a lightning round on a few books here. Yeah, go for you it. you can stop me when you want me to stop. Yeah, let's or, go for okay. it. So these are, I'm going to try to be short, and 45 minutes later, we'll see how I did. Um, Murderbot. I read the entire Murderbot Diaries this year, um, which is a series of six or five novellas and one novel by Martha Wells, which are fun stories about a sort of killer robot that, killer cyborg, it's kind of complicated, but what does it matter? Killer robot thing that has like an existential crisis and really just wants to sit at home watching soap operas all day, but keeps having to go out and be a killer robot and um and it's not exactly right because she actually kind of you know, kind of breaks away from that in the first book but it's a really fun time it's not high art right but the psychological portrait of Murderbot is really really good <laughs> and the last the novel actually won the hugo this last year oh wow this year uh and i don't know what it's competing against so i don't know but it was it was kind of fun to actually read a book which was like in the news which i don't do right currently popular. i look at the hugos every year and i'm like god i've heard of one of these oh, you know yeah. and i'm a genre guy um so Murderbot is fun. The one thing about it is all of the titles are super generic nonsense, like All Systems Red, Fugitive Telemetry. I can't remember them. They're so generic. Can't remember them. And the covers, like, 
it's like perfectly serviceable sci-fi art. Like it, it would be great on a cover of Clark's World. Right. But it, the tone is just wildly incorrect. For what it is. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like it looks like it should be covered for like a David Weber novel, right? I don't mean to pick on David. I just no. You know, let's and, let's uh, take him down. Uh, it's, it's not, someone they're should. All just like for these like kind of fun like works about this robot that wants to watch soap operas and you know all of its friends are like in polyamorous relationships and you know have different pronouns and stuff and i'm not being snarky like that's the kind of book it is right it's good right but like these super generic sci-fi covers are deeply confusing and i cannot imagine (laughs) being like random sci-fi guy picking this up and being like it's a book about a killer robot and then not being annoyed by what the which would be a mistake because it's a good book but anyway uh it's just it's just a weird thing about publishing what we were talking about um you know like pd james gets pulpy covers while martha wells gets like covers for starship troopers and (laughs) it doesn't make any sense uh, I read Good Omens this year, finally. Oh, yeah. By Terry Pratchett yeah. and Neil Gaiman, which I'd never read before, because I'm a, I don't know. And it's fun. It's a good time. But I think it's completely incoherent as a philosophical statement, which is fine, except that it thinks it's making a philosophical statement. But its philosophical statement is like, we should be good to each other and the environment, which is fine, but is pretty weak. And also, it is really weird to write a book about the Christian apocalypse without Christ ever <laughs> even like mentioned. <laughs> and I get that it's not really about the actual Christian apocalypse it's about Christian apocalypse as interpreted by metal album covers. Right, and that's right. fine. But like, it is still deeply like there's an antichrist and there isn't any mention of Jesus. And I'm not like, this isn't like my, where's Jesus Christian pounding the table. It is just kind of an odd project. Yeah, yeah. Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah. Like it'd be like doing Lord of the Rings fanfic and just who's Frodo. I don't know. He's some guy. Uh, so that's, I'm going to get pilloried for that more than whatever controversial thing I it's said true. about mental health. The, t- saying you the don't Terry like Pratchett fans saying. don't mess around, man. They really don't. No, they don't. <laughs> Um, the Vet's Daughter by Barbara Comins, that is outsider art. I don't know how to describe this book. It's like Shirley Jackson on acid. Uh, it's this sad girl who's the daughter of a vet. And to set the tone for the book, like we learn repeatedly that the veterinarian has a tendency to take the dying animals of people who are like, hey, put this down for me. And then he sells them to a vivisectionist. That's how the man <laughs> is described. He is referred to as the vivisectionist. Wow. And I, I think I said this in my book blog. I'm not sure there's a worse word. Like a, a, like a mm. more upsetting word in the English language than vivisectionist. Like, it's worse than vivisection. No, it is. Because no, a vivisectionist right. is not just somebody who has vivisected something. He's someone who does it often enough that it's kind of who he is. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> and that's horrifying. Um, it's a really weird book. I don't fully understand it. It's great. It's a strange book. Um, lightning round. All right. Uh, Jesus and John Wayne by Kristen Cobes Dumay, or however the heck you say it. Uh, it's a good book about how evangelical culture and inevitably ended up in this bizarre worship of white American masculinity, which was a particular kind of masculinity. John Wayne, of course, was is, is heralded as like a great masculine figure, but he's actually kind of a dweeb, if you, you know what I mean? Like yeah. he, he didn't fight in the war. He made a lot of propaganda about it, but he didn't fight in it. He's heralded as sort of a Christian masculine figure, but he had like four wives, you know what I mean? Right. And this is all, of course, in the shadow of Trump. The book is not about Trump, but the sort of inciting incident is how the heck did all these evangelicals get behind Trump, like the least moral man, you know what I mean? That's and his brand, because, right? His brand is not being yeah, moral. <laughs> he's like the least moral man, yeah. And it's because that's not what this is about. Evangelicalism has become about um, this worship of this particular white, straight male masculinity, which is even a particular kind of man, you know what I mean? Right. Like, uh, I don't think she makes this point, but, like, of the two, who is the masculine hero? It's Jimmy Stewart, not John Wayne. Right, Jimmy Stewart totally. is the one who actually flew missions. And what, you know yeah, I mean? yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he's never the one people think of. Um, it's a good book. It could be longer, I think. Um, you won't believe some of the stuff Mark Driscoll says in the book. 
Oh, uh, I, I mean, I, I remember w- him saying it at the time, yeah. but I still forgot. No, I, I, it was so, it was so funny when everyone would like, you know, in, in the little evangelical world that I'm still attached to, um, people would sometimes they would like they, they kept like referring me to him, you know, and I would go like listen to him, and literally every time I randomly listened to something, I, I heard like I must have done it just twice because it was so bad. I came back and I was like, oh hey dude, I, I feel like he started out the sermon by saying that like wives are to blame for adultery because they don't keep themselves hot enough. Is that, was that the one you want me to listen did mis- to? Did I misunderstand something? Yeah. Because <laughs> I don't think I agree with that. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to be like, you know, I want to be like big softy, you know, <laughs> but I think that's crazy. I'm not trying to be super woke here, <laughs> yeah. but I feel like that's a lunatic way to think about things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's also, she's constantly getting in trouble on, tw- not, well, not, not in trouble by the right people, but like, there's all these people who are really mad about the book and maybe it's just cause that's, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm woke poisoned or whatever, but I read the book and was like, yeah, yeah, that's uh that all tracks, right. you know? And people are like, you're a Marxist lunatic, anti-Christian. <laughs> you guys just can't read. And also she's got you and you don't like it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so not like an incredible text, kind of an important text, a good text. And, uh, I like her a lot based on this book. I'd like to read more of her stuff. Um, lightning round. I listened to Genghis Khan and the making of the modern world by, Jack Weatherford is his name, I think. Yes, Jack Weatherford. And uh, it's a audio bo- it's a book about why the Mongols were super cool. And it is, to some extent, like, propaganda, because, like, the Mongolian government really liked it. I don't mean that it's wrong. It's just, you do sort of need to read it through the lens of, this is the biggest Mongol fanboy ever, right? He's also <laughs> a super, whatever the equivalent of a weeb is for Mongolia, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. who he is, right? He's some white guy who is just loves Mongolians, uh, Mongols. Uh, at the same time, it's a really cool book, and uh, I am now also whatever the equivalent of a Mongolian weed is. Yeah, welcome to our Golden Horde so. podcast. <laughs> Kublai Khan did nothing wrong. Cheats. <laughs> um, which is, of course, not true. But uh, I, I just true. So there was a game that came out uh, last year called Ghosts of Tsushima, which is a controversial game for various reasons I don't care about. But you play like a Japanese samurai on the island of Tsushima, like beating back the Mongols. And my buddy was describing it to me. And I was like, I'm having like a patriotic response here. <laughs> like, what do you mean? You're fighting against the Mongol? I can't do it. <laughs> and, like, and the Japanese, like, they only lost because of the wind. It's, the only reason they lost was because of the storms. It wasn't for the storms, that, which is true. And anyway, I'm kidding a little bit here. The Mongols did a lot of terrible things. But they were a lot more complicated than people think. And a lot of the horror stories about Genghis Khan, or Genghis Khan are actually about Tamerlane, uh, which was interesting to learn. Mm. Not saying all of them were about Tamerlane, but a lot of the really horrifying stuff was. He still killed a lot of people. Let's be very clear. Um, but he also instituted perfect religious tolerance and created the first working major postal system and ruled an empire that was like all of Asia and huge chunks of Europe. Um, and the last Mongolian like ruler was really the last Mughal emperor in India. That's where Mughal comes from. Right. I didn't know. Yeah. So anyway. It makes sense. Uh, lightning round. Also read Rise of the Warrior Cop by Radley Balco. I talked about it on my blog. I won't talk about it much more here. Really good book. Really horrifying book. Um, don't read it if you have blood pressure problems. <laughs> uh, the idea that all these uh, cops on no-knock warrants can kick down doors, shoot people's dogs, damage them, burn them with uh, damage their property, burn them with flashbangs, all in the pursuit of marijuana plants that they then don't find because they're in the wrong house, and then don't even apologize afterwards. Um, yeah, pretty bad. Yeah, that's bad. There might be some problems with our system of policing here. I'm just throwing that Whoa, out. Whoa, Bill. <laughs> you're, yeah, not, take, you're not one uh, of these. <laughs> you're astonished that the public defender feels this way. Um, <laughs> but hey, it's a really good book. It's well-researched. It makes its point very well. 
it stays on topic. It, it focuses on a few specific aspects of this, even as it hints at other things, and does a good job showing how like SWAT teams got to where they are and uh, our modern system of policing being something so different from the way it would have been understood 300 years ago in ways that would have just shocked. I mean, the idea of explaining this to John Adams, as I think I made, like... <laughs> um, anyway, uh, I read Stanley Karnow's History of the Vietnam War. I still don't know enough about the Vietnam War because just quickly reading a 600-page historical text means you don't know that much more than when you started, but I always have a better sense of what happened and also a sense that the fact that I'm confused about why it happened is because that's it's confusing. There was not a particularly good reason for it to happen. And That's good to know. Yeah. So it was a good book. Yeah. Uh, he gets a lot of sources from the Vietnamese side of things. Um, and I'm sure a lot of people hate the book because he's like generally pretty, he kind of admires the way the Vietnamese uh, forces fought. Um, and he gets a lot of interviews from some of the major generals and so on who were involved. And uh, it's really interesting to read that from both sides. Because I can't think of, I mean, I'm sure there are other texts, but when you hear about the Vietnam War, it's always just, you know, uh, Creedence Clearwater Revival and people being sad about using helicopters to napalm people. Yeah. I'm not saying it's not a compelling story to tell, right. but there was actually another side in this war. Uh, two books that I am not smart enough to talk about, but that I would be remiss not to mention. Uh, I read Marilyn Robinson's Gilead. Um and it's the sort of book that is so incredibly good, so transcendently beautiful that I'm scared to talk about it because I don't know how to talk about it correctly. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I feel this way a bit about Piranesi as well uh, in yeah. that I actually kind of don't want to pick it apart, not because I think it can't stand the scrutiny because I know it can, right? But because I just don't know if I'm equal to the task. <laughs> um, so a lot of really smart people had talked about how good Gilead was and they were right. It's incredible. It is. It's also a book that's really easy to make sound like a Hallmark novel, Hallmark movie. Because it's about like a an old kind of probably dying pastor like imparting his wisdom to his son. It's very easy to make that sound boring. It's not. It's wonderful. Uh, read Gilead and probably read the other three, but I haven't. read Yeah, it no, Millen Robinson. I mean, so. she's she really is one of the the greatest living American authors. I think. Uh, just I, I did listen to the audiobook of Piranesi by Susanna Clark, which is read by Chiwetel Ejiofor, um, who is one of my absolute favorite actors. So that's kind of a confluence of things Bill likes. I don't know who hired Chiwetel Ejiofor to record that audiobook, but I think it may yeah. have been me traveling back in time and making myself happy. <laughs> you know, I was just going to say, I mean, I I feel like you're a little harder on both those things than I am, but I also love those, that confluence of things. And I couldn't believe when I, I listened to part of it like on Libby last year, you know, one of the library audiobook yeah. apps. And I, I was like, I, I, I didn't look at who narrated it. I just started listening to it. And my eyes just kind of like kept widening and widening and widening. <laughs> I just couldn't believe the luck of like the universe to give this to us, you know? <laughs> yeah, it, it really is like someone specifically decided, you know what will make Bill Coberly happy? <laughs> yeah, and, that's, uh, yeah. You know, they did. Yeah. It's really good. It's a different book, an audiobook. Uh, you don't get his idiosyncratic capitalization, uh, which I think makes the book it gives the book some of its power i think is the way he capitalizes things like he's writing in the 18th century it makes this science feel a lot more like a natural philosopher right you know, going right. out and just sort of picking up bugs and deciding what you know which is part of why i think the book is really cool um but you also get chiwetel for reading it which is um obviously not a bad thing <laughs> not a bad thing um i actually i got back from <laughs> i was listening to it in the car and i got back and my uh the girl i was dating at the time was at my house and i was like i'm 15 minutes from the end just going to have to wait a minute. Like, and, I sat, I sat, <laughs> and she was okay with it. I mean, I did it like dictatorially. But like I sat down and I was like, I'm going to finish listening to this book. And I did. And it's great. Um, it's a very good book. And it's also a book that I'm reluctant to talk about too much. Like that's why I connected these two. Because yeah. 
it can absolutely withstand the scrutiny. Uh, but it's just hard. You know what I mean? I agree. Like, it's, it's hard no, to I agree. pick it apart. Um, uh, I bought like everyone I know a copy of it for Christmas this year. <laughs> I've actually handed out a fair amount of copies as well. It's just it's a really good book that I feel like can it has that crossover appeal. You know, you can kind of give it to anyone, and they can enjoy it at a various at various levels. I think I have two more things, and then I'm done lightning rounding. Um, but I don't know if I mentioned this. I read 104 books this year. What? Um, and so, uh, uh, I read Red Badge of Courage because I've had a copy for a million years and finally got around to it. I didn't know what that book was. I knew it was about the Civil War. I did not realize that it was like an incredibly psycho, like incredibly narrow, like fog of war view of just one guy sort of stumbling through a series of battles. I'm not saying it's the best book I've ever read, but it's a lot more interesting than I thought yeah, it was. So yeah. you know. And if you read it when you were in high school, like I'm sure a lot of us did, you probably didn't get it. Um, so, you know, it's also like 110 pages long. So give it a shot. Okay, I have two more. I'm sorry. Uh, Muriel Spark. We've talked a lot about how cool Muriel Spark is in the past because you Just read a lot of her best. stuff over the last yeah. few years. <laughs> I don't have that much more to add, but I read five Muriel Spark novels this year. She's incredible. Best in the game. No, she's unbeatable. Dynamite stuff. Yeah, she's, she's so great. Um, ludicrously good. Also, Vicious just pretty vicious i don't i don't know like the uh, not the only problem that's really good too but the, the driver's seat which is i don't even want to talk about it it's <laughs> about a woman like deliberately trying to engineer her own murder by a serial killer yeah, basically yeah. and you realize that pretty early on that's what's going on uh and it's just an unsparingly brutal book um the last couple pages are the worst thing i've ever read i mean they're wonderful like they're incredible but they're like horrifying um and in not a prurient way do you know what i mean no, I, like yeah. what happens is the sort of thing that would be easy to describe in a way that would be lurid and that's not what it is somebody tried to film it i think and i'm like i don't know how you do that without missing the whole point um, yeah it might be good yeah. i'm not saying no, it I isn't yeah. but she bounces around in time and a lot of her, we talked about this with uh, the private miss jean brody but like on page like five she's like she's, she's doing all these things that are outlandish so that people will recognize her when they're giving statements to the police later like she's wearing a deliberately clashing dress mm-hmm. uh and coat or whatever so that people remember who she is and she'll she's like and later on this was the thing that you know so and so remembered when she talked about her heck of a book the only problem is probably my favorite of the new ones i read this year which is a guy trying to understand the book of job while his wife gets involved in like a french terrorist organization uh, <laughs> dynamite book truly good book really weird book really good uh i also read david copperfield by charles dickens which i'm also not really smart enough to talk about but it's a thousand pages long so i'm at least going to mention it um it's a really good I, I, dickens is such a pleasure on a page by page basis that i don't even know how to evaluate the text as a whole right it's just like a bunch of stuff that happens most of it to david copperfield he doesn't really make a lot of choices but uh it's really fun the armando Iannucci movie yeah i had seen before i picked up the book uh totally changes that david is absolutely the hero of his own story as the uh opening line says like he makes a lot of really strong choices that are actually done by entirely different characters the only thing I'm going to say is that they totally do Mr. McCopper dirty in the movie, which is a shame because he's played by Peter Capaldi, who is you know, one of the, the favorites. Yeah. Last thing I'm going to say is I rewatched Firefly and Serenity this year, and it is hard how much worse Serenity is than Firefly. So that's my last <laughs> Gosh, hot take. No. <laughs> I'm right. It's just a much lesser work. <laughs> well, the problem the problem with uh, with Serenity is that it's trying to like it's trying to do some. Uh, it's trying to get new, new, new audience as well. You know what I mean? Like it's trying to go beyond the Firefly audience. The problem with Firefly is that a few of the episodes are terrible. <laughs> I don't think they were terrible. They're definitely better in worse. Uh, the Old I'm West, not, like not... when, like you know, like they gotta like protect uh, the 
the you know the prostitute. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's really bad. Probably the weakest episode. <laughs> it's 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 probably the weakest episode. It's also when you know more about Joss Whedon. <laughs> as we have it doesn't yeah, it doesn't help to like, have the Joss buddy. Whedon context. Oof. Yeah, I, I, I will always <laughs> like Serenity better than you, but I I have conceded that Firefly, which I I, I would be fair. I thought of, it was better as soon as I watched it in the correct order. <laughs> you know, um, it's yeah. Better. I mean, that makes sense. If you if you thought you knew what you were getting with Serenity, like they are different things. But, they are very different. Um, I watched them. I watched them back to back this year. <laughs> I was like, man, I wish I hadn't done that. Yeah. Because... <laughs> well, you've actually talked me out of rewatching Serenity. Like I've rewatched part of Firefly, and I I can't bring myself to rewatch Serenity because I'm now worried. Like if only the force of your opinion. What if I agree with you? <laughs> I'll be so annoyed. <laughs> I love ruining things for people. I had a buddy I used to work with in the restaurant, and he talked about how much he liked Skyrim, and I accidentally unloaded on him about how Skyrim is a bad video game, which it is. Yeah. Uh, and he was like, yeah, whatever, man. Oh, he was polite. And then he came back. He's like, I can't play this game anymore because you're right. <laughs> well, this is, this like, on one us, hand, I'm sorry. This takes us on back the to hand, the, you're the hot take monk, right? You just... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just bask in the glory of being right and not being able to enjoy the most popular video game ever made. It's a lonely life, but, but it's, some, a, it's a just Someone life. has to do it, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> okay i think i'm done with my lightning round i think it only took half an hour um but i don't know if i've mentioned this joel but i read 104 books this year what and uh <laughs> i'm gonna quit with that bit but um i'm really glad i did it i'm never doing it again <laughs> yeah i yeah I, I i think at one point so when i first started recording how many books i read um it was like in 2017 i think i read 83 books and i that year i'd had kind of like a soft goal of hitting 100 and it's not going to – if it ever happens for me, it's it's when my kids are much older. <laughs> I think uh, I, I've been hitting around the mid-50s. That's pretty That's pretty prime territory, I think, for the future. I'm not sure I yeah. can ever outpace my, my that. My goal – in the last few years, my goal has been 52 books, and I've usually crossed it by a few. Um, yeah. But I think I'll keep that as a general baseline. And I might even theoretically read that many books again some year, but right. I'm not going to do it as like a I have to do this. Uh, yeah. I'm not going to ever do that. Yeah. That's – I, I I can't hang out with you tonight, friends. I have to read this weird book about, you know, whatever the heck. You know, you know it's funny, though. You talked about it as being, like, partly just a, yeah, like a self-improvement discipline for you know, having something, you you know, you would kind of attend to every day. And I will say, I, I do think that is how I feel about writing sometimes. And I, I've actually, the last two months has probably been... Um, the least productive period of my writing life in the last four years. I got a new job and it's just been very, very busy. But, um, it's, it is sometimes I literally have like, you know, I I don't tell them why you don't ever tell people why (laughs) you don't hang out with them if it's for writing. (laughs) Um, but yeah, I, I truly like, I, you know, and it's one of the jokes we had, we, we had with, uh, my classmates in Syracuse when I was doing the writing program there was like, it was kind of nice when you had the shorthand with other writers to be like, oh, you want to go out tonight? No, no, I got I to gotta do some work. You know, I'm going to try and work on this thing. Whereas yeah. you tell your normal friends, like, hey, I worked all day and put my kids to bed and I can't come out for a beer because I have to, like, uh, do a, a, a puppet show in my mind of fake people, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um. <laughs> well, at least you're writing mostly serious literary fiction. I'm going to be writing about elves. <laughs> Not even actually elves. I mean the new the new novel I'm working on. I, I, I can't talk about it, but yeah, the new novel I'm working on. I don't know if it's serious. It's uh, it's it's a little got some hijinks. Not a hijink. What? Yeah, more than one bill. It's a hijinks. You know? Oh, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I think you're only allowed two. In literary fiction, one and a half. You know. <laughs> 
Uh, did you have any of the books you wanted to talk about? I'm sorry, I, I just ranted for a long Dude, time. Dude, no, but, I, I was hoping uh, this would be kind of. Um, I mean, I think we both talked a lot, to be honest. But I, I you, you really did do something that I'm probably never going to do, and I, I kind of wanted to get an inside look at it, and I think we did. So, I'm good. I have nothing else besides I like B.D. James. You know, <laughs> she does sound really. Great. I mean, the, I'm the, the one other person, the one other person I would shout out in my year of reading was I really love Muriel Spark, of course, and Penelope Fitzgerald is similar. Sometimes when I read Penelope Fitzgerald, I worry that I like her more than Muriel Spark, which is so hard, which <laughs> is hard for me. I know, um, but uh, there's another writer who's who's male somehow. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, he's also like a funny British writer though, who writes these compressed beautiful tales um jl carr his probably most famous book which is so so short one of these one sit wonders you know sit down for an hour and a half and mm-hmm. finish it um but it's called a month in the country it's just about this guy after world war one restoring a church in like northern england and it's beautiful but it's also he's so funny that nothing's ever sentimental but he also wrote a book about mm-hmm. like a non-league um english football club winning the fa cup which is just like i don't know Th- that was a book that was like I couldn't believe basically like a male Penelope Fitzgerald wrote a funny book about soccer. Like that was one of those like, here, Joel, <laughs> the universe <laughs> the universe has found something for you. Um, so, yeah, I, I would be remiss not to shout out him because I do think he's only written so many books. But in the next year or two, I'll definitely have read everything he's written. All right. Well, uh, so we do know what our next book is for our regular episodes. Uh, thanks for listening to this very long podcast about all the books we read. I hope it was fun. We enjoyed saying it, which, you know, is all we care it's about. It's kind of right? the point we of don't the really podcast. Yeah. listeners. <laughs> Sorry, um, everyone. <laughs> you guys can be here or not. Joel uh, just hung up on me, which he didn't mean to do. I think I maybe ran his phone out of batteries because I talked so much about books he hasn't read. I'm going to cut most of this, but I'm going to keep talking because it's funny. Hey, man, did I run your phone out of batteries? No, I thought I ran yours. Mine has 70% left. <laughs> no, I think I think the uh, the phone just said three hours is too many I hours. I think so, too, because I was like, I, was like, well, uh, I actually did think I was like, oh, no, my phone died. <laughs> but I looked down, and it's totally fine. <laughs> all right, well, I'm going to take that as the universe telling us, which we were anyway. But we, uh, again, we appreciate you listening to us. Uh, I hope it was fun for you guys, too. Um, a lot of really great writers out there. Uh, P.D. James, Connie Willis, again, Victor Laval for all that I was being mean to him. Um, a really good, really good uh, raft of folks. If nothing else, there's enough book recommendations in this to keep you busy for you know a while. Uh, hopefully that was fun. But our next book is uh, Marion Zimmer Bradley's The Mists of Avalon, which is sort of a major staple of like I want to say 80s, but I didn't actually look it up. Fantasy, which is a, a sort of a feminist retelling of a lot of the Arthurian myths, uh, primarily from the perspective I don't think primarily entirely from the perspective of the major female characters, so Guinevere and Morgan Le Fay and a bunch of other minor characters that I don't know much about. Um, I think Bradley has actually been in trouble. She's been dead for a while, but I think she was kind of up to some shenanigans towards the end of her life. But we're just going to read the book and talk about that. Um, uh, We're excited about that. It should be sometime in March. And then we're excited for uh, everything else we're going to do this year, which we're, of course, not going to tell you what it is yet because we haven't entirely decided ourselves. But uh, it should be a really... Should be a good time. And uh, as always, thanks for listening. And this marks the beginning, or I guess the end of our fourth year, the beginning of our fifth year doing this podcast. So, um, you know, we intend to keep doing it as long as a few of our friends listen. Uh, Thanks, guys. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Seriously, though, Joel, thanks for for letting me rant at you for like 45 minutes about stuff I read and then let you talk for five minutes and then rant for 45 more minutes about stuff I read. This was a very Bill-heavy podcast. It's my favorite kind of podcast. Um, But... 
Easily. Again, I don't know if I've mentioned this, but I read 104 books last year. Oh, that's uh, it? I'm going to beat that joke to death. Um, I think I have beaten that joke to death. Um, all the best jokes are beaten to death, I got to say. Uh, I think the shortest way to my heart with like a recurring joke is to just no, plug to it go, into the no, dirt you, and then do it again. You have to. No, that's the thing. Is it, it there really is like this. There's this death point, and then you have to go like five times past that. And then it's funny again, which is actually what yeah. dad humor is, I'm learning. <laughs> like, you have to get to the where the reader is going, oh my god, I get it, and then keep going, yes. and then it becomes the funniest thing yeah. you've ever heard. But you got to get through that first step, so we'll see if I'm there. Uh, Joel, I don't know if you have anything else to say. I don't have anything else to say to you. No, I'm good. Thanks for everyone you know who listened. Uh, this definitely is just a fun project for Bill and I to kind of catch up, but I, I don't know. I, I, do, I do love the books we read this year, and I, I think... Yeah. If nothing else, this podcast, however, you know, middle brow and stupid we might be at times, I, I, I do, you know, I do really believe in a good book having a, a you know, like Connie Willis said, it has a special relationship to truth, a good book. And I, I, I hope that we can kind of be a part of the adv- advocacy of that without ever falling into the, you know, the Goodreads books are good without, you know, just dis- discretion category. <laughs> so... To, to paraphrase Connie Willis in passage through the voice of the English teacher, good books are the voices of the dead trying to tell you how the world actually is and the truth. And, uh, you know, I definitely felt that was true for a lot of what I read this same, year. So. Same, same, same. All right, Joel, thanks for hanging out, and uh, I will see you next time. Sounds good. Bye, buddy. Bye. Thanks, as always, to Lily and Keenan LeBlanc for letting us use their track Water Song for the intro and outro to our podcast. The Big Readcast can be found uh, pretty much everywhere podcasts can be found, so if you want to go onto one of those services and leave us a review telling us how much you like the podcast, that'd be great. If you want to go onto one of those services and tell us how much you don't like the podcast, I'd politely ask you to keep that to yourself. As always, thanks very much for listening, and we'll see you guys next time.